0: You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network.
1: Hi, this is Jim Starlin, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel
2: Podcast.
3: Hello and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Marvel 2-in-1, Episode 1, Cry Monster. And this covers a period of Marvel 2-in-1 from 1973 to 1976. Actually, it's just 1973 to 1975. I'm going to split this epic collection into two episodes. I'm your host, Curtis Findlay, and joining me today... Are a variety of different co-hosts. I decided to try something different. This is an experiment. Because The Thing teams up with a different hero in each issue of Marvel 2-in-1, I thought it'd be kind of fun to team up with a different co-host for every issue. So I, (laughs) there are 22 issues in this epic collection, so I found 22 different co-hosts. And we talked for a long time on each issue, so I have to split this into two parts. Now, the reason I'm saying this as an experiment is because there are going to be some things like uh, variety in quality. Everybody's Skype connection is different. Some people I'm talking to in person. Um, I'm recording these in different rooms in different circumstances. So so bear with me as we kind of jump from, from uh, co-host to co-host. I, I recorded these over a period of like three or four months. I've been collecting them for a while now, and uh, and now this is it. The first episode of 2019 is going to be Marvel 2-in-1, this extra special episode. And one of the cool things about um, having so many co-hosts is that we're getting opinions from all over the world. It's really, really neat to see Marvel fans um, all over the world, and they're coming together in this one episode, or the, these two episodes, actually. So I have, uh, let's see, in this episode we're going to talk to Tommy who is in French Guiana and then in the next episode we'll talk to Frank who's in France and Ray who's in Australia and of course there's a great representation from Canada and, um, and the United States as well. So I hope that you will enjoy this episode and let me know what you think and if we should do more episodes like this. Um, it is a logistics nightmare trying to coordinate schedules and stuff but I think I can pull it off again. Okay, so just before we get into the episodes, I asked for comments on Facebook to tell me what you thought of this epic collection. Joshua says, It is awesome seeing Ben Grimm interact with a wide variety of the Marvel Universe, and I especially like the ones where the rest of the FF aren't present. Timothy says, I just finished this a couple months ago. I enjoyed the guest stars. I think I enjoyed the Hulk and Man-Thing the most. JC says, This collection will always hold a special place in my heart because it includes Marvel Team-Up number 6, which was the very first comic book I ever owned. It was the first of many that my mom would buy for me from the newsstand in the subway station on her way home from work. I don't remember anything of the story, but the cover is burned into my memory as the very first book in my collection. And after reading the issue in this collection, it, it occurs to me 44 years later that the cat I remembered on the cover is actually a rat. However, it still looks like a cat. And I have to agree with you, J.C., it is a very unusual cover. Grant says it always seemed to have better writing than Marvel Team-Up and reads a lot better over the years. Um, I haven't read much Marvel Team-Up except for the odd issue that's collected in the Epic Collection, so I can't speak about that um, entirely, but I'll take your word for it. And I hope that there will be a Marvel Team-Up Epic Collection where I can experience that for myself. (music) In this episode, we are talking about Marvel Feature number 11 and 12 and Marvel 2 and one numbers 1 to 9. Now, Marvel Feature is where Marvel 2 and one started, and then it was spun out into its own book. In fact, it was just retitled. Marvel Feature was canceled after issue 12 and renamed Marvel 2 and one and prominently featured the thing on the front cover of every issue. And this episode that we're releasing today collects all of Steve Gerber's issues. I mean, he didn't do the Marvel feature issues, but he started with Marvel 2-in-1 one number one and then um, ended with Marvel 2-in-1 number nine. And so uh, in the next issue, we'll talk about the f- sort of a few fill-in issues and the stuff that came after Steve Gerber. So now on to the issues. And we start at the very beginning of this book with Marvel feature number 11, and it's called Cry Monster. And joining me for this very first issue of this episode is Alex Lear. Hi, Alex.
4: Hello. How are you today?
3: Good. This is a, It's <laughs> great to, to talk with you about this issue since you are the one who's doing all of the Hulk um, episodes with me. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we're jumping ahead now to the 70s, though. This is a very crazy, different Hulk. Very different Hulk.
4: Spoiler alert. Yeah. A much more fun Hulk, too. Like, the, you know, really the classic kind of Hulk in my mind. So. um Len Wein, very classic Hulk writer. Um, so it's good to see his writing in this issue, for sure.
3: Give me a, just a brief background about the Hulk at this time. When you read this issue, he 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 talks fairly intelligent, just kind of in third person.
4: Yeah, well, he's he's not too bright. I mean, he's probably <laughs> he's probably thought like I don't know. Where would I put his intelligence level at this point?
3: Right. When I say fairly intelligent, I don't mean like on the Bruce Banner or D- uh, okay. Reed Richards level. I just mean he's not below average. He doesn't seem right. to be below average.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <He's kind> of, <laughs> I don't know. I think he's kind of – he's a bit below average at yeah. this point. I mean he's we've seen him certainly in the 60s. We saw him kind of hover between kind of intelligent, um, sinister – um, by this point, he's been dumbed down a bit. I mean, he's not like Savage Hulk, brainless, stupid, or anything like that. Right. But he's, You know, you can kind of, I think what makes this story fun and what makes Hulk thing team-ups or fights fun is that the thing is, you know, he's a relatively intelligent guy, uh, but the Hulk at this point really isn't that bright, but you have kind of the comedic relief of the way they kind of play off each other. The thing in this story is trying to reason with a Hulk. The Hulk's not really having it. So I think they do portray the Hulk a little bit as less than average intelligence in this which makes him fun, I think. I mean, A lot of people don't like the old Hulk smash Hulk, but I, I have a soft side for
3: him. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so why don't you walk us through this issue? Just give us a brief yeah. recap of what happened here.
4: So Kurgo is back for the first time since Fantastic Four number seven. Um, he wants to um go back to uh, the people that he'd lost he had ruled before they don't they want anything to do with him um and they have the technology to fight him off so he wants to bring the biggest bruiser from earth with him to kick their can and he was going to bring the thing but then found out in all the years since he'd been to earth or had had contact with earth that the hulk was now maybe the, the st- world's strongest mortal um but the leader who is of course the uh, hulk's arch nemesis his basically saying like, "No, Hulk's my guy. You can't, you can't have him." And so basically, the two of them propose this, this fight between the Thing and the Hulk. Whoever, uh, whoever wins the battle, I guess. Yeah, if, if the if if Kurgos guy wins, then Kurgo gets to use both both monsters in his um in his quest. If the leader wins, he gets the yeah. It's, it's basically, I think he gets access to them or something like that. But it's the leader's yeah. motivations are completely absent. From this,
3: he he's True. used so it's so weird because he's he's trapped in this stasis <laughs> right. um, tube or something like that. He can't move. He can only yeah. like project his right. thoughts, and he says, "Yeah, when um, if I win the, this contest, then I'll be free of this tube." And you can give me some knowledge, and that 's it like there, and then he has kind of no point in this story at all, and later on, when the whole ship at the very end explodes like he 's gone, and there 's no real like he has no
4: motivation for this this fight at all he just wants to be a pain in the butt to Kergo that 's really it yeah. <laughs> yeah. i don't you
3: don 't even know how he got there, how Kurgo got him, or anything like that
4: <laughs> i think it 's one of those stories you just have to sort of. You know, you, you kinda of lower your expectations as far as you know, it's not a really deep story. Yeah. It's just a good old fight fest and you know, you just kinda of go with it and have fun. But you're right, there are a lot of loose ends. <laughs> and yeah.
3: Well, everyone loves um when the thing and the Hulk meet up and, yeah. and trade punches. It's just it's always a good time. And and this issue is no exception there. Like it's it's a lot yeah. of fun. Like you said, the way they yeah. play off of each other is just great. <laughs>
4: I think my favorite sequence in here is um, just looking through the epic on page 19, where you know th- the thing is like, okay, we could just like keep fighting each other, and, and of course the thing's strength has been augmented; he's now twice as strong um, thanks to Kurgo's robot or something. But um, so it's pretty much they're pretty even strength-wise. And the thing knows like I'm wasting time; I got to get to this bomb so that we don't like so the earth isn't blown up and so i like where he's like trying to reason with the hulk he's like come on cuddles you know you got to listen to me you know are you, are, do you understand what i'm saying and then that final panel where hulk's just like no <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> i think that's so awesome and then he just like bashes the thing but then i love how you know he bashes thing into the ground the thing jumps up behind him and bashes him into the into the house <laughs> you know, on yeah. page 21 it's just uh it's just cute you know it's it's they <laughs> and it's got me thinking i, I want I, I tried to look it up before we got in touch um the graphic novel but in 86 i want to i think it's called the big change i think that's what it's called i gotta reread X. I think uh jim starlin who does the art for this one along with joe sinnet um i think jim starlin did that um graphic novel which was the team up between hulk and and uh thing right. there too i so. think you're right yeah so it's kind of an interesting sequel maybe to this story so.
3: so it's fairly common knowledge that the hulk is way stronger than the thing right like right. It's really no contest. Everyone always wonders who's going to win in these kind of things, but and I guess that's you don't really know who's going to win in these because the thing, while he's not as strong, has some more strategy and intellect to help him out.
4: Exactly yep
3: he had to have his powers doubled in order to just match the the strength of the hulk
4: right exactly that's a good point you make though otherwise it'd be kind of boring to have the two of them fight each other it's like you know you'd know the hulk would win every time but yeah it's uh things got his he's got his ways you know too sometimes yeah but it's a a good start to the thing series you know i mean this is, this is begins here and goes really through well marvel 2 and one goes through 1983 and then you've got the thing series that picks up from there until 1986 so it's a uh, a 13-year run of stories, I think we got here.
3: Yeah, it's great. And it's a good start. And I really like Jim Starlin's work. Uh, he is He's very solid. And definitely Joe Sinnott helps um, give that slick kind of classic Fantastic Four look to the work as well. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. it's just a, he's a good storyteller. So all through this action, um, you can tell exactly the choreography of it all is, is well laid out by what Starlin does in these pages. Yeah, and true. this is still and, fairly early in his career, right?
4: Yeah, I think you're right because I think he um, Iron Man fifty five was earlier that year in seventy three, um, and that's right. where Thanos um, comes into play there. And I think that might—I don't know if that's Jim Starlin's first Marvel work or not. I'd have to I'd have to check. But um, B, yeah, I think you're right. This is kind of early on, so he does well. Obviously, I was reading. Um, I was looking at the Masterworks version of this um, that collected this uh, story, and Roy Thomas talks a little bit about trying Jim Starlin out and looking for someone who could really tackle the chores here really well and tell a good story and, and portray the thing in a really good way being a very complicated character to draw and he just knocked it out of the park so i definitely agree it's good good yeah. stuff good writing good artwork yeah
3: he sure did and it's too bad that he didn't stay on past uh
4: when this this title evolved into marvel two and one yeah you know it is a shame isn't it yeah i would yeah. be interested to read further and see a Oh, yeah, we got a little bit of gillet of course. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. <laughs>
2: so,
3: <laughs> we'll, we'll leave somebody they, else's job. Yeah, we'll leave them to the other co-hosts here. But, yeah, thanks yeah. a lot for this. I enjoyed uh, romping through this, yeah. this issue with you here, Alex, and we'll catch you on another episode of uh, The Hulk when we get to another Hulk episode.
4: Sounds fantastic.
3: Okay, great to talk. Okay, moving right along, we have Marvel feature number 12. It's called The Bite of the Blood Brothers. And my co-host for this one is John Wilson. Hi, John. Hello, hello. I listen to your podcast, Make Ours Marvel, and you're on a few other podcasts. you want to give us a little clue as to where we can find you?
0: Yeah, Make Ours Marvel is a look at uh, early 60s Marvel at makeoursmarvel.com. I also do a podcast uh, about Image Comics called All the Pouches, an Image Comics podcast. That and another new project I've just started with my son, called super silly sentai which is a commentary podcast on the super sentai japanese superhero tv show uh those are both at john reeds comics.com with no h in that title <laughs> but the reason i chose this particular issue to, to, to come and talk about was because i frequently guest on resurrections and adam warlock and thanos podcast and that could be found uh Gosh, I forget the exact URL, but if you if you if you Google search "Resurrections Adam Warlock Thanos podcast," you'll you'll get the Tumblr page where that's hosted.
3: Wow, so that is very appropriate for this one considering the content. Um, why don't you give us a little recap of what's happening in this issue?
0: So the thing is stomping through the desert, and Iron Man flies by. Iron Man is looking for the Blood Brothers that he has just run into uh, because. With the Avengers caught up in a big brawl with Thanos over the Captain Marvel comics right now. So Iron Man uh, and the Thing, they fight with these two red, rocky-looking guys called the Blood Brothers. They tussle in the desert. They fight until they're tired of fighting. Um, And Thanos is like, you know what? Blood Brothers, you failed me, and you have to die. So he zaps (laughs) them from space, and they're dead. And the Thing's like, oh, well, that was fun. Um, now can I get a ride home, Iron Man? Iron Man's like, I actually kind of used up most of my power fighting these guys. So I'm just going to fly myself home. Sorry. And the thing keeps on stomping through the desert.
3: (laughs) That is it. That's a great recap. Now, I, there, there really isn't much more to this. I was actually hoping that there'd be more meat to it, especially because, you know, Thanos is involved and such, but it's kind of just a big brawl the entire time.
0: Yeah, there, there are some very minor details that tie in with the with the other ongoing saga, but it is completely uh, auxiliary to all that. Mm-hmm. You don't need this issue to understand what's going on. It just kind of follows up on the Iron Man 55 first Thanos appearance. Mm-hmm. So Iron Man's you know emotionally invested, and then you have – The Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel, for those who don't know, is the first series where Jim Starlin used his new creation of Thanos in like an ongoing story. He had him show up in Iron Man. He had him show up here. And then he used him in Captain Marvel for like the saga. And that's where Thanos got his start. This just sort of ties into that in a very, uh, um, you don't need it to understand that kind of way.
3: And I think in Thanos' second appearance or maybe a third appearance or something in Captain Marvel, the thing is actually a guest star of that issue. So the Thing has met Thanos before, before this two-in-one issue, and then he meets the Blood Brothers, and I guess he doesn't know that Thanos is behind it because they use a code name. What does he call himself? Master Lord.
0: Yeah, Master Lord. Master Lord. Yeah, so Iron Man knows that Thanos is behind it because he knows the connection, but the Thing knowing Thanos and fighting the Blood Brothers doesn't ever, I think, find out in the story that there's a connection between the two. Yeah. That's funny. I hadn't thought about that.
3: Yeah, it's very strange. This is we should say also that this issue is drawn by Jim Starlin and it's probably written by him too. The writing credit goes to Mike Friedrich who is um uh, Jim's collaborator for all of Captain Marvel for most of Captain Marvel. Uh and I'm pretty sure he just does the script. I I think Jim these are all Jim's plots as far as I know. Yeah, that
0: that would make sense, yeah.
3: This issue is also included in the Captain Marvel complete collection. And yeah, like you said, it's completely incidental. You, if you remove it, there's, there's kind of no, it doesn't have any bearing on any part of the story that's happening otherwise.
0: Which isn't to say it's not, it's not a really fun read because it is. I mean, there, there's lots of humor. There's lots of good, you know, thing moments. Um, one of the things because I haven't read a whole lot of Marvel Two and One. Um, I've read this issue a few times, but I have read every single issue of Marvel Team Up. Yeah. And that book has definite highs. It is not. Uh, deserving of the bad rap that it often gets, but it does have some low runs. Uh, but one of the characteristics of Marvel Team-Up is that it very rarely ties into Spider-Man's ongoing life, and it very rarely ties into the ongoing lives of the guest stars. Okay. And so the fact that Iron Man appears here in the course of his ongoing narrative was really cool.
3: Yeah, you're actually going to find... Uh, if you read more Marvel 2 and one that this is a, a reoccurring thing through all of the, the issues in this epic collection, uh, or most of them, maybe 90% of them, they all actually tie into the ongoing story of the guest star character. Some In some cases quite heavily, in other cases just um, minor, but they they do they especially since steve gerber is writing a lot of the early issues he ties all of these into the other books that he's writing like guardians of the galaxy and daredevil well and we'll we'll talk i'll talk about that with my other co-hosts further on down the road here
0: um some some highlights that i that i saw were whenever they uh the computer addresses thanos as his or no the narrator refers to him as his satanic majesty <laughs> yeah right that was pretty great yep in the fights, whenever Blood Brothers are fighting the thing, the thing will be like repulsed by the physical force of a blow, but he's barely phased by. It. He'll just get back up and keep on coming. One of the Blood Brothers hits him with a giant tree and whacks him like a baseball, yeah. but then the thing just like gets up and keeps on coming. It's like, you know what? You mess with the wrong guy. <laughs> and uh, I really, really like that. I, I started getting kind of a Dragon Ball Z feel to this Uh, Yeah, right. with the fight scenes. Uh, um, I don't know, just I've been watching through that show actually for the very first time. And it just kind of felt like they just kept on, you know, coming back for more and coming back for more. And yeah, lots, just lots of really good moments right at the end. Whenever Thanos kills the blood brothers, he says there can be only one uh, fate, you know, for people who failed me, but he shouts, there can be only one. And, you know, of course, that's a Highlander line that oh, just yeah. seems, yeah. But, anyways, there are lots of really good parts to this this story.
3: I, I appreciate Joe Sinnott's inks on this. I give he gives Ben a real, um, a really good Fantastic Four look, uh, mm-hmm. and you compare that with the the issue in Captain Marvel that thing guest stars in that's not inked by Sinnott, and it just has a, a very different feel. So it's uh, it's neat to see how one person's artwork can be affected when you have kind of the collaboration going on.
0: Yeah. The inker can do a lot to, to make things look, you know, similar in tone. Whereas Starlin, you know, maybe has never drawn the thing before in his life, you know, professionally at least. Uh, right. Sinod does, get, does link it back to the fantastic four look. He
3: absolutely does. Especially um John Buscema's thing. Okay. Well, uh, do you have anything else you want to add to this?
0: No, I know we're keeping it short, so I just yep. wanted to you know put some ideas out there it It, it was a fun read as a fun chapter and uh I was happy to happy to get a chance to read it again.
3: great, thanks for joining us today john so after two issues of Marvel feature, they proved to be popular enough that um that we're gonna that Marvel Two and one is spun off into its own series. so now we have Marvel Two and one number one, and with me to talk about this is drew drew, can you take us through issue number one?
5: Uh, Sure, the Thing objects to Man-Thing stealing his name And he decides to head to Florida to settle the matter In the meantime, the son of the Molecule Man um, is with him on his deathbed And wants revenge as he dies And so he ends up getting his own Molecule powers And heads to Earth to get revenge on the Fantastic Four Uh, And he happens to land right in the swamp in the Everglades where Man-Thing is Um, after they get transformed back into normal men they end up teaming up to defeat the Molecule Man
3: yeah this is a a strange issue (laughs) I was like it's the the weakest excuse for Thing and Man Thing to meet meet (laughs) up (laughs) so he just has the same name as me he's using Thing he wants all the glory I'm not going to let that happen Nice one. I feel like Steve Gerber really writes thing as a mean person. Like he uses his his looks to intimidate people all throughout this book.
5: He's very angry and I mean even the even the cover he's punching a hole through man thing and he's just got this extremely <laughs> angry look on his face yeah. as he does it.
3: Yeah. But it's cool. Steve Gerber, of course, is the guy who um, created Man-Thing and was writing him in his various guest appearances um, in various books up until this point. Now, Man-Thing number one actually came out the same month as this book. So I'm pretty sure that Man-Thing is a guest star here to try and introduce people, because people are going to buy it because of The Thing, who was quite popular at the time. Um, to, mm-hmm. to introduce people to this new character, Man Thing, and help Man Thing launch his own title.
5: I have to say, if I if I was reading this, um, I don't think I would be that interested in picking up the Man Thing <laughs> title after <laughs> oh, yeah. this.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's um, well, Man Thing's kind of a he's an interesting concept. He really only works if you're writing it in a horror kind of setting. You take yeah. that out especially because the character doesn't talk he's not that interesting
5: he just kind of stands there i, I was more interested after he got changed back to uh to human form right and,
3: yeah exactly
5: and and the villain here the molecule the son of molecule man he's he's pretty ineffective he doesn't he just gets his powers and he he's tied to this this rod that keeps him young because of time differences in the two planets that he, he comes from and he's just kind of a kind of a goofball throughout the issue here.
3: Yeah. So Molecule Man is a character that um had only been seen once before this in Fantastic 4 number 20. And at the end of that one the Watcher sends him to this like he exiles him to whatever dimension he's in now. Mm-hmm. And we haven't seen him this is 1974 that this issue is so it's been a good decade and um this whole story has been retconned now because of course the Molecule Man has come back he he dies in this issue but he's back uh, and plays a significant role in like um Secret Wars in the 80s
5: yeah and and the, the recent Secret Wars uh series as well
3: yeah so the retcon is that um that Molecule Man he transferred his own consciousness and powers into that rod that uh his son has and his son is actually not actually his son he's a like a humanoid android construct (laughs) so it makes no difference that he died it's fine don't worry about it and um and then the wand whoever holds the wand has the power like owen reese the molecule man can take over their mind so that kid gets it at the end Mm -hmm. of this issue and I think, I think the events ca- uh, continue in Iron Man Annual number three, and um, the Molecule Man takes over several people's minds and eventually gets his own body back, or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> so there you go. This <laughs> um, this whole story it has been a uh, completely retconned. It is it is of no ser- consequence. But I think most of the issues in Marvel two and one fall under that category.
5: You know, I, I like the concept of the series, but it's. At least as far as this issue goes i I wouldn't be be too enthused with more man thing um yeah <laughs> and i i like the i like where the son of molecule man gets his costume uh, <laughs> oh, yeah kind of it kind of just appears on him and he, he he says, well, at least I have more fearsome garb and it, it's it's basically like a bikini-looking outfit. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
3: it's definitely not the fiercest thing I've ever seen. <laughs>
5: no, I, I think he should have stuck with the robes that he had on. Yeah,
3: it. oh man, so funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it's uh, a lot of this is the product of its time, um, the fact that the the series has you know rotating artists and rotating uh, writers, so a writer has to come in and make a, a somewhat cohesive story in one issue, and then he's out of there and even the page count is a little smaller because this was the 70s and they were cutting back on things like that as well. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah. Anyway, not a great start to this series, but um as I said there's there are better issues and then there are worse issues. So <laughs> thanks for joining us on this one, Drew. Oh, yeah, no problem. Moving on to issue number 2. This one's called Manhunters from the Stars. Joining me for this issue is Jason, and uh, Jason, you have a couple of podcasts, right? Why don't you tell us about them?
1: I do. I am one of the co-hosts for Whorehound Radio, and another co-host that I do with a couple of friends called Night of the Comic, which is a Patreon benefit for the podcast Night of the Living podcast.
3: Now, um, we're, we're here to talk about the Submariner today, is that right?
1: Submariner and the Thing teaming up. So tell me about this issue. Uh, give me a brief recap. Well, it's issue number two of Marvel 2 and one Manhunters from the Stars. And it opens with uh, the character Wondar, who is a Steve Gerber creation, falling into the sea. It is a pickup from Steve Gerber's Man-Things story. Uh, I believe it was uh, the Fear issue number 17... Right. When he was writing that, um, I know I've heard you talk about Wondar on your podcast before, because he later goes on to become the Aquarius. Uh, Wondar right, yeah. is one of the more interesting Steve Gerber creations. He is, yep. to summarize it, a hippie <laughs> Superman Jesus, pretty much.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Um, But you wouldn't be able to tell from this issue. He's very different.
1: No, because Steve Gerber puts his spin on it completely. But uh, before I get too far ahead of there, you see him crashing into the ocean. Because when you last saw him, he was just jumping away from a battle with Man-Thing. And the thing about is, is that he is completely childlike and he has no idea how to control flight or any of his leaps, so when he jumps in the air, he basically just comes crashing down. And when he crashes down this time, he lands right next to uh, Hydro Base, which is where Namor has been hanging out with his, as this says, band of amphibians, and his, I'm sorry, his cousin, uh, Namorita, sees one of our crash, she thinks it's just a human in danger and jumps in to save him. And I will say, again, Steve Gerber has been known to get a little bit odd. I take it you obviously read this issue. Oh, yes. So the scene when she's giving him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. <laughs> yeah, right.
3: Hmm, I'd like to try this again sometime after he wakes.
1: That was one of the first things that jumped out to me. Is yep. That was a little bit weird.
3: Well, you know... If, uh, if I were ever giving CPR to um, an unconscious beautiful woman would I probably think the same thing? I I might.
1: <laughs> Who knows? I guess I've never been in that situation.
3: I have never been in that situation either.
1: Or <laughs> I've had to resuscitate a unconscious space Superman Jesus character.
3: True. Yes. Uh, that situation probably doesn't come up very often.
1: So once he wakes up Uh, She's trying to communicate with him. He actually cannot speak because at this point, he is basically a newborn. And I guess that's where I should throw in there because he does have quite an interesting origin. I keep referring to Superman because it turns out that one Dar, and I'm going to have to use my comic here for reference, is an orphan from the planet Docum. And he has basically the exact same origin as Superman.
3: Yes, yeah, I was going to make that note as well.
1: Oh, it is so great. It's a great tribute. And again, Steve Gerber is one of my favorite writers from this time era. Where his parents, specifically his father, predicts the end of their world and takes it to their council, just like uh, Jor-El. Well, the twist in this is that, one, his parents are killed when they're presenting that their son's going to go supernova, but before they're killed, they are able to send Wondar out into space. And then the other great twist is that uh, the council was right in this instance; the world does not blow up. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was it's a great such twist. a cool twist on the story.
3: The other twist that I really love is that um, is that Wondar, just like Superman, was kind of in stasis, and he grew to be, you yep. know, a a child. Um this guy, it took I don't know, 20 years or something like that. So he's a full-grown 23 adult. years I
1: think it says. But
3: he hasn't learned a single thing.
2: Yeah,
1: because uh, I guess unlike Jorel, he didn't, you know, install any crystals that taught him on the way. Right.
3: So he knows
1: nothing. It's it's a great concept. Oh, absolutely. i I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Steve Gerber's man thing. Yeah. And I remember reading his first appearance, Wondar's first appearance in that, and they they recap it in this, of course.
3: They don't do the the recap. Doesn't do it justice. You got to go back and read that actual. It does fear. absolutely
1: does not, because when he comes out of stasis, his first thought is the first thing that he lays eyes on is now his mother, and it just so happens that that's man thing.
3: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's so good.
1: And Steve Gerber references this multiple times in this issue that he basically throws temper tantrums when he ever whenever he doesn't get his way. So that's Wondar's origin. So the fact is is that he cannot speak. So after he is saved by Namorita, Namor shows up. Yep. Also, one of the other notes I love from this time era is that Namorita completely speaks like like a beatnik, like young person from this time era. Right. Her dialogue in this was actually quite quite interesting, and the exchanges she has with Namor was fantastic. when He just kind of shuts her up a few times. She kind of, Later
3: on, like in her New Warriors days, uh, she'll start to speak more like Namor and have sort of his same sort of uh, kind of attitude yeah. and that kind of thing.
1: Yep, in the New Warriors, and then when Byrne was doing her in his Namor run. Right. So in this, the other thing that I love... And again, just like in my introduction, I am a huge fan of horror movies and grindhouse stuff. It cuts to The Thing and Johnny Storm leaving a grindhouse theater after just watching a movie called Five Fingers of Doom, which unfortunately I don't know if that's an actual movie. (laughs) It probably is, yeah. Probably, because they refer to it as just like a a generic kung fu movie.
3: And they were cranking them out at this time, those kung fu movies. Oh,
1: oh yeah, absolutely. So then Johnny leaves, of course, just randomly, you know, I guess it's not Marvel 3-in-1, so they couldn't have the Human (laughs) Torch in here also. Right. The Thing tells him to kind of like, you know, go away because he wants to brood and talk about how ugly he is, which was another little thing I remembered from the first issue of this run with him and Man-Thing. Yeah. So out of nowhere, Wonder just crashes again because he has no ability of flight or how to properly land, which is again another awesome little twist I think on that.
3: On Superman, yeah.
1: In typical comic book fashion, a fight breaks out. Yeah, when he crashes into a cab, Gerber refers that he starts throwing a tantrum because like you know a taxi crashes into him and he takes it as an act of violence and start just throwing cabs all around the city. Uh, of course, the thing gets involved, uh, as they're duking it out, the aliens, I should guess I should have mentioned that, that there are two aliens from his home planet of Daxum. Daxum, or, yeah. Or Dacum. Yeah, Dacum, who are actually traveling to kill him, Wondar, because they are afraid that if he ever finds out what happened to his parents, he's going to come back and seek revenge and kill all of them. Also another little uh, twist on the Superman mythos is that Wondar gets his abilities on Earth because of the gases on Earth, not the sun. So yeah, these two aliens are there to kill him. They have, uh, of course, classic names, uh, Zeng and Meng, I believe. I think Tumar. Tumar is one of them, Yeah, Tumar. That was it. They're watching the Thing and Wondar fight, and they kind of say, like, well, let's just hold back for a little bit, because this, uh, what is this, this large orange monster could do our job for us. Yep. Um, typical fight, going back and forth for a while, Namor and Namorita show up, because Neymarita feels bad, because she can tell, you know, just from the brief interaction that they had, that Wondar is not all there. And Namor re- reluctantly agreed to kind of go help, I will say that, also, I keep mentioning Steve Gerber, but this was drawn by Gil Kane and, mm-hmm. and inked by Joe Sinnott, and that is one of the greatest creative teams ever, in yeah. my mind.
3: Yeah, they do a fantastic job in this issue.
1: It cuts to two uh, great splash pages that Gil Kane drew back-to-back, where the thing is beating up on Wondar, and he kind of has like a brief moment of realization when he says... Uh, could it be that this guy I'm beating up on isn't playing with a full deck? Yeah. Uh, cripes! I've been slamming around a slow learner all this time. I'd hate myself. But then, as he's having that thought, he quickly changes his mind and says, "Or maybe that's what he wants me to think." <laughs> yeah. And just decides to punch him through a street.
3: Oh man! And that that panel's just amazing with the the debris oh, flying. man, that and was. Just, you can sense the. Yep. How how powerful that punch was.
1: Yeah, and I can't lie, you know, it's funny, I think you and I have talked briefly before that The Thing and Superman are literally my two favorite comic book characters of all time. Yep. So this issue in particular was was the closest I'll probably ever get.
3: (laughs) To a Thing-Superman battle.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they did do an oversized uh, little team-up back in the 90s, I think, but this was really just, this was great. Because then again, that splash is followed up by Namer and Neymarita showing up. Obviously, classic dialogue with Namer just saying, "You craven brute!" Yeah. This youth is under our protection. All of a sudden, even though Namer kind of was just accusing him of being a spy. So then that goes to the thing in Namer fighting the two aliens. Remind me again, who did you say? Zeng. Um, uh, Zeneg and Tumar. Yes, and Tumar. Now, all of a sudden, say, well, now that this other guy showed up, now we have to get involved because now it's going to be one Dar Namer and Namerita versus the thing. So they send down the Mortoid. Yeah. A wonderful name. Now, again, quickly, it seems like almost they needed to do a quick wrap up here. In yeah, my opinion, yeah.
3: It really does
2: seem that way. Because they
1: send down this Mortoid and. They just literally they say, Let's go down there. One panel shows him coming down the next panel, they're shooting one dar and that's kind of that. They shoot him and everyone kinda of says like oh I guess he's dead.
3: And then they take they make quick work of the machine.
1: Oh, absolutely. Namer and thing of course have to team up and then take out this mortoid. I did love that one of the descriptions says Zhang cries out in panic but from the robot there's no voice only the whirring of tapes <laughs>
3: yeah right that's awesome yeah
1: yeah which it's an interesting thing that even back then uh they couldn't think past the concept of tapes in VHS yeah and again, a very quick thing, the second the two aliens see Neymar and the Thing coming towards them, they just absolutely say, never mind, that just go."
3: Well, they did see them smash their robot like it was nothing.
1: They did. Now, this also does have one of my favorite endings, as much as I just said it seemed like a quick wrap-up. So when it's wrapping up, Neymar and Neymar Reader kind of explaining the whole situation to Ben saying, like, you know, this is an infant's mind and a man's body. He needs a lot of help, and we're leaving.
3: (laughs) I know, right? They just completely ditch him with
1: him. (laughs) Yep, like, you know, and he's kind of saying, oh, yeah, he needs kindness, not anger. And then he says, "Uh, we must depart, uh, both of us now. We have to leave. And he just leaves, leaves Thing holding Wondar in that classic... You know, superhero holding a fallen cam- comrade pose. It's
3: yeah, it's the Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, mm-hmm. cover there, which yeah, I guess technically,
1: yeah. I guess actually this technically predates that. It does, yes.
3: But you no, know, I love his last line. It's like you—you can't make me a blasted babysitter out of me. You, you mackerel brain, you Yeah, <laughs> <Aw>, nuts. <laughs> you mackerel brains, <laughs> ah, nuts. Yeah, this is so good. Now. Um, that was a very rushed ending, and I felt like maybe, um, as cool as those those two splash pages were, if he had cut them down, we might have had maybe a little bit of a better flow. But, uh, Absolutely. But we don't want to sacrifice those splash. Well, that pages. and
1: also, I mean, I guess maybe it's just a story layout, but you know, honestly, I was a little bit interested to see two splash pages kind of towards the end, right? Not in the beginning. And yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, I know Steve Gerber did write this for a, a little bit, but I mean, this this series could have been a little bit difficult, you know, interjecting new characters every issue. Yeah. Obviously, this, uh, and again, not to go too far ahead, but this goes into Project Pegasus, if I'm correct. It does, yeah. I know one dar later has a lot to do with that, along with the thing. What I will say, this completely makes me want to go back and revisit all of that.
3: Yeah, well, we will uh, eventually get to those issues um, as the Epic Collections progress, which is cool. But I think that's like still like 50 or 60 issues down the road. So oh, absolutely, we cut a long yeah, way I mean... to go. Yeah, it's neat to see that um, Wondar, his his origins, and like how completely different he becomes. It's a it's quite a wild yes. ride for this character.
1: Yeah, it's going to make me really go back and revisit his entire origin because, like I said, I I picked up on the character first through Man-Thing, which, again, I cannot stress that if you read this issue and you enjoy it, to go back and revisit all of that or to rediscover it because that is where you get full-fledged Steve Gerber, like, uninhibited and to just see, again, like, the whole progression of Wondar and to the... Uh, Aquarius is that where of my am i yeah
3: um Aquari, aquarion i think it is
1: aquarion that's it yeah where yeah he becomes kind of like a, a hippie Jesus figure
3: yeah, he'll show up in defenders and that kind of thing
1: yeah that's right there yeah
3: well, I think that wraps up this issue for us um do you have any final comments or anything
1: uh just the fact that I am now going to sit down and probably read this entire thing from the very beginning.
3: But well, that's good, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm glad, yeah. You'll especially being a Steve Gerber fan. There's plenty to love over half especially of the book. You're saying that
1: this actually continues in the next issue.
3: Yep. Go home and uh, hang up here and read that because
1: it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> there you go. Oh, absolute blast. Yeah. It's one of those comics that if I read that as a kid, it would have made me fall in love with comics.
3: Well, thanks, Jason. Glad to have you on the show here, and uh, we'll get you back for Marvel Two in One Volume Two. And um and hopefully no, that'd be great. Hopefully uh those Conan books come sooner than later. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Coming up next here is um Marvel two and one number three. This is The Thing and Daredevil. And joining me for this issue is Adam Chapman.
6: Hi, how's it going? So uh so I'm here because it's Daredevil and I'm a I'm a Daredevil fan and I'm I'm you know, your Daredevil co host and uh I have to say, the only period that I'm the least knowledgeable on for Daredevil is basically the period that this takes place in.
3: Yeah, nice. Yeah, me too. So, th- yeah, this is actually a welcome surprise because it's a it's just classic Daredevil. That's what it feels like. It's kind of classic Daredevil.
6: Very much so. It's in that kind of weird you know, um, you know, it's around what, issue 109 or 110 of his own book, so it's, it's a very kind of weird time for that character. It's interesting because we get a, a, a little glimpse of his kind of personal life but not really and foggy nelson's around but he's you know he's near fatally shot recently and he's you know got a job that's very different although i guess we don't even see him actually we see the commissioner so we hear about foggy but we don't actually see foggy so you know it's it's strictly daredevil mask forward not really about matt murdoch at all
3: right yeah exactly uh and but however the the plot lines in this story stem from two other books that Steve Gerber is writing at the time, uh, he's he's writing uh, Kazar, and so a That's lot right, of yeah. this story starts in Kazar number two, the stuff featuring Shauna the She Devil, and then it it also then spills over to Daredevil because she goes to Daredevil for help in what in Daredevil 109, and then we mm. have this issue kind of in the middle here, and then the story continues in Daredevil 110. So it's kind of a weird story that takes place in three titles. very strange so
6: i have a question about that do you think that we'll see this in an eventual daredevil epic
3: i do i think we will because it carries on the story i i really do think that we'll actually see this in here now i mean i guess if you take out this this issue nothing of real consequence for the larger story actually happens
6: like i don't know if they would reference it i mean some big stuff happens with black widow so like i don't I can't speak to having read Daredevil 109 and and 110, but like, you know, this is, as you said, kind of an in-between issue, but you know, there is some stuff still happening that's pretty important for the character that's not happening in his own book in terms of his, you know, him seeing Black Widow, which we're getting ahead of ourselves a little, but you know, I'm just curious to read those issues without this context, what that would even look like. But I guess yeah. eventually we'll yeah.
3: see. We will. And I think though that this one this issue closes off the Shana story part of the story and it kind of focuses more on Daredevil moving forward so if you like at the end of Daredevil 109 Shana um, goes to Daredevil for help and it's in this issue where she explains why she needs Daredevil's help Mm -hmm. so we kind of do need that in that sense I think
6: true and it's interesting like so i haven't read many of these two in ones and obviously you have because you're doing this episode um but it's interesting to me how the thing really isn't that much of a factor like you spend time with the thing and kind of his plot line throughout this book but really this is a durable issue
3: yeah that's a that's a common thing throughout the epic collection there are some where he's featured more heavily and then there's some where he's just kind of along for the ride and this is definitely an along for the ride story for the thing for sure,
6: and is it just me or does it seem weird to have um, like you start the issue with you know a nice shot of, of you know Ben Graham working out with his five thousand pound weight, but it, it was weird that it wasn't a giant machine piece of machinery that he was dealing with.
3: <laughs> kind of funny.
6: That's that's classic thing, right? So it is. Uh, to, to to quickly go through the issue, I mean, you you have the you know the idea that you have one Dar and uh, you know Reed's trying to you know figure out where his powers are coming from. And really that creates the very brief inciting moment of a giant piece of, you know, of um, I guess of the building being blasted out and then almost hitting Daredevil as he's just swinging by. Like literally that's how he gets involved. And in very kind of classic Silver Age fashion, we spend like a, a page and a half of Daredevil trying to figure out how he's not gonna die. Um, <laughs> and setting him apart from, uh, from a character like Spider-Man, you have, you know, these workers in a, in, a, in a way that actually is reminiscent of Amazing Spider-Man 1, the movie, where you have this crane, and they're trying to help him, and they're trying to save Daredevil, and he's able to you know use the crane to bounce off an awning, and I, I swear that used to happen all the time with superheroes and awnings, yeah. um, bouncing off them. And then he's like, man, what happened? Oh, it's because something happened from the Baxter building? I'm going to go in there and talk to them. Like, it's so ham-fisted
3: it yeah, yeah it really is and that's a lot of the th- that's also a common thing through this epic is like the, the the loosest thread to get the thing involved because it happens to be a thing title
2: <laughs>
6: yeah it's interesting too because like there there's there's parts here where i just feel like the artwork doesn't quite match what we're getting in terms of how the characters are reacting to each other so for example when you have daredevil going into the into the baxter building and he you know is trying to figure out how to use the elevator because there's no call switch and then you know the thing kind of shows up because he knows he's there the look on the thing's face is so pissed uh but really that's not matching the dialogue like it's just an interesting rendition of of the thing that you're getting here but you know again very 70s uh very on model for the most part but he just things seems angrier than normal here
3: yeah, I wonder if that's just the Marvel method, with the, where the words in the picture don't quite jive because the picture came first. True,
6: and then again, then we have Daredevil visiting Shanna, uh, which is interesting. I had to remind myself, like that's that's Shanna the She Devil. Like yep. I forget that you know, there's there's connections here, but uh, and we get a lot of like you know you know you go see this issue, go see that issue. Like there's a lot of stuff. For a book that's relatively new at this point, this is only the third issue, and it's kind of t- telling these fun team-up tales, there's a lot of continuity being dropped on you.
3: And I wonder if that is because they wanted to try and promote this book, and so they're like, in Daredevil, because Daredevil's selling well, and I, that's a guess, I don't know how well Daredevil was selling at this time, but uh, you see at the end of that issue, go check out Marvel 2-in-1, kids. Mm.
6: I I almost believe it would be more likely to be the other way. Because Daredevil always felt like a book that was never selling well. So now you have a book where you have, you know, uh, obviously the thing is enough to carry things on his own. And, like, even in the first couple of issues, you have, like, Namor, who's not really able to support that much of a title on his own, typically. You have Daredevil, who was not very popular. Like, you have a lot of the lesser popular characters kind of showing up. Next issue, obviously, you'll get Captain America and some bigger names. But Daredevil's not a big name in the 70s. I mean, that's why he had to share his book with the Black Widow to begin with.
3: Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you're right. What do you think of this villain here, uh, Black Spectre?
6: So I was, okay, this really was, again, this is a blind spot for me, ironically enough, because it's terrible. Um, A blind spot in terms of my familiarity with the character. Well, Black Spectre was used heavily by, I believe, wasn't it Mark Waid, who used the Black Spectre organization? So I didn't even realize that that was a thing that had been used years and years ago in Daredevil. I didn't realize that was a continuity hack that he you know, figured out from, you know, because no one read these issues. You know, no one really remembers this stuff. So I actually really liked that they were using that. Now, in terms of the Black Spectre and having that weird leader and it being this weird kind of cult in the way that they're shown here, that I was not ready for or aware right. of um but it was definitely interesting uh what i thought was most surprising about this issue given when it takes place is how brutal the violence is when matt murdoch goes on his date
2: uh, oh his
6: sister yeah and they they watch this show and two men get murdered one of them gets his head blown off like it's very violent
3: it's, and i was yeah. shocked i was quite surprised at that too it's like they're they witness um a murder suicide and that's like everyone this sort of thinks it's part of the show and then like no no that was real it's like no this is actually happening it was very surprising i was quite quite shocked that that they would have this in this book like even if that happened now i would take pause i'd be like whoa like that they they really went
6: hardcore with this but the fact that this is in the 70s and this is on the newsstands and kids are picking this up and you know there's a murder suicide right on the page like that was like really surprising
3: uh, going back to Black Spectre just for a second here, do you know who the, without giving away any spoilers, are you f- aware of who Black Spectre's secret identity actually is? I can't remember, no. Okay. I'm not going to say for all of you people who are listening here, uh, because it's a spoiler for those of you who are going to check out Daredevil 110, but there is a clue in some of the artwork in this, in this issue as to who the, who the guy actually is. And Adam, if you want, I'll tell you after we stop recording.
6: Okay. <laughs> Excited to find out. Because, again, the, the modern interpretation didn't have the leader in the same way.
3: Okay. Well, yeah, I think that for, for the most part, this issue is kind of fun. There's a little bit of um, nice action and, and, rep- and rapport between Daredevil and Thing. But for the most part, it really is an issue that benefits from reading the one before and the one after. So just reading it in this one collection out of context is kind of difficult.
6: It is, um, but as I said, you know, it's kind of that fun kind of action, and it's one of those things where, like, if you were a kid picking this up, you probably wouldn't care. You'd be like, oh, okay, you know, they're they're teaming up. They're, you know, the. It's interesting too that you have like Daredevil trying to steal the Fantasticar when he really could have just
3: asked. Yeah, right.
6: <laughs> like, it, like, there's a bunch of like, and and even the narrative leap of him like thinking that he can knock the thing out just by kicking him in the face. Like, come on, like, you know, he's made of rocks. <laughs> This is not going to work. Like, there's just a, there's a few leaps, but I think as a kid, like, it would, you know, it'd be fun and, and, and crazy. It definitely makes you wonder. Like, when you have the, the sequence, when you have, you know, the thing ripping off the the, the visage of the Black Specter leader, and then kind of being entranced. trance. Like, that's kind of a cool kind of makes you wonder what's going on. But again, it's a tale that will not ever be seen in this book again. Yeah. Because uh, it goes back to Daredevil, and even Black Widow, she really gets short shrift here. Like when she's kind of in a panic after what's going on, and she's like crying, like it's just, it's not a good look for her.
3: So the only bit of Marvel two-in-one continuity in this book is the continuation of the story of Wondar, who we met a couple issues ago. And in this one, Reed Richards is trying to, you know, he's doing some tests to find out more about Wondar. And he suspects that Wondar got his powers the same way that they got their uh, their powers through being bombarded by cosmic rays. So that's an interesting um, little bit that I don't think really gets explored further um, in, in future issues.
6: Interesting. One thing about the art, so it's by Sal Busema, which if you had put a gun to my head, I never would have figured it out. Because it just doesn't look like any version of Sal I've ever seen. But I guess that's partially because of Joe Sinnott.
3: That's exactly because Joe Sinnott is such a strong inker. His style really uh, um, really carries over over top of whoever's penciling. Um, and, of course, that gives this a very Fantastic Four look because, he, you know, he, he worked on that book for so many years.
6: Yeah. Now, I will say there are some shots of Daredevil, especially, like, when he's falling uh, off the building, that I got uh, some uh, hints of Colin, um in the art in terms yep. of how Daredevil co- costume kind of looks. And, uh, yeah, there's just some pieces there.
3: The heavy shading, for sure.
6: Yeah. The background players don't, you know, don't look great, um, not the greatest detail, it's very scant, but it's not, you know, it, it's, it's not meant for that, it, it's a, it's a slam-bang, fun issue with a surprising amount of continuity, <laughs> a surprising amount of violence. Um, and like harsh things happening, it, it's 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 a it's a mixed bag. Um, Wondar's costume is so ridiculous looking when he finally gets one.
3: <laughs> yes, that's true.
6: <laughs> like I I like, I don't know what the plan was here because even Reed says like the design of the costume follows the patterns of force in Wondar's body, and yet it has no real rhyme or reason. Like it's super strange.
3: Yeah, I think Wondar is a casualty of uh, rotating writers in this book later on. So whatever writer came along kind of went in whatever direction they wanted with this character there's no real vision for him I think
6: what do you think of no I this I mean in future issues I mean you still have Sal on art but you have different inkers. what do you think of the inks here do, do you think they work best uh, better than some of the other issues in the book do you think that they're you know they're more unique to the maybe the character they're doing that they really bring daredevil alive like what do you think about using synod here
3: um, I think it's fine. I always enjoy when Synod is on inks there There is no steady inker in this book at all it It flops from person to person fairly regularly throughout here. but you can notice that um Synod does inks for the two Marvel fanfare issues that are at the beginning and okay. um over Jim Starlin's art and oh. that looks very very different, much more polished. Uh, just, okay. I just think because it's Jim Starlin rather than Sal Buscema.
6: Well, I mean, he even he does do the second issue here too, over, but it's over Gil Kane instead.
3: Right. Yeah, and that looks very different. And I think Gil Kane just has odd poses and is a little bit more rough around the edges. So even Sinnott's work doesn't polish Gil Kane as much as it does um, some of the other artists in this book here.
6: I gotta say, it does make reading this issue makes me more excited. Eventually, to get more kind of you know late silver or bronze age um, Daredevil, because again, it, it is this blind spot for me, and I you know they've never really collected much of it. it for many years, it was basically you know they would print the essentials of Daredevil uh, for the kind of the early years, and then basically it went right to uh, you know the Miller run, and they just kind of avoided you know like a hundred issues worth of material that just it was like a deemed it didn't matter and maybe it doesn't in some ways because everyone kind of goes back to Miller and 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 forward. But uh, I'm excited to you know be able to place this issue in a better context and actually read those stories. Yes, I'm sure some of them will be silly, but um, it'll be fun to kind of read you know the uh, the Daredevil Black Widow years and you know when Frank um, Nelson was the DA and all this kind of stuff that's very kind of different than the classic status quo of Daredevil, which we've kind of been inundated with. That. We, we've kind of been locked into a certain status quo for Daredevil for a long time. Um, it'd be nice to kind of see when they were, it was actually more mutable and more changeable because they weren't locked into anything and it wasn't a super super popular character.
3: Well, the nice thing about the Epic Collections is we know that it's coming at some point. So yeah, we yes. can be really Ten excited 10 years from now,
6: that. we will talk about
3: it. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Well, thanks, Adam, for joining me on this issue. I appreciate it and it was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Next up is Marvel 2-in-1 issue number four. It's called Doomsday 3014. And with me for this issue is Tommy. Hello there. And Tommy, you are my Avengers co-host. That's it. Yeah, and you wanted to tackle this issue with Captain America. Yeah. So, yeah, why don't we just get right to it? Why don't you tell me what, give me a short recap of this issue right here.
7: Yeah, number four opens with uh, the Thing uh, walking with uh, a, guy, a guy called Wundar uh, in a park. Then everything goes wrong, so the Thing has to save him from the, the pets that, that have escaped. Uh, in, in fact, it was Wunder that uh, helped free the, 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 the animals, so uh, the Thing goes to help him then Captain America is passing by with Sharon Carter, so he goes to their the rescue. And then uh, after everything is solved, they go uh, to the Baxter Building to see Reed Richards. Uh, and then all of a sudden, there's a woman who is teleported from the future. At first, she, she's in shock because she doesn't believe that uh, the heroes are alive because in, her, in the future they are all dead. So uh, they ask her what's what's happening what's her story so so then they decide to go to the future to to help her.
3: Mhm. Yeah, this is a, a a pretty cool issue. Now what you don't know because you didn't read these uh, other stories before this is that in uh, Marvel 201 number 2 Wanda just fell out of the sky. Ah. And that Na- <laughs> and uh, Namorita found him and uh and he couldn't talk. Because I guess um, he has the he has the brain of a child. He's in a full-grown body, but the brain of a child. So he's only just learning to talk, which is why he, you know, says, "Look, look, Uncle Benji," when he's instead of yeah, Uncle Benji.
7: I know I've read the, the issues that come way later during Pe- Project Pegasus, and yes. then he, he comes back. Uh, he appears in the story arc, and uh, he becomes he. Let's say he gets upgraded. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm good. going to spoil for stories that spent 20, 30 years ago, but... <laughs> yeah.
3: So in this story, uh, yeah, we can see that Ben is still playing kind of babysitter to Wondar, but uh, he, Wondar is written out of the story halfway through this issue. Um, Namarita shows up with a friend of hers. I guess she's going to college. That must be some new developments that's happened in uh, the Submariner ongoing series. And she offers to take Wondar with him. So he just kind of goes. <laughs> and yeah. that's that's the end of Wondar's story for now.
7: What, what I was surprised to see is that Namorita was introduced already uh, way back there. Because the first I, I've seen Namorita was in the new Warrior series.
3: Right, yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that she goes back this far. But yeah, she was um, the main character here in um, Marvel 2 and 1 number too, and uh, and yeah, makes another appearance here, and she's living on land apparently, with a roommate yeah. and going to college. So, very different type of Namorita than we're used to.
7: The stories happening during this issue is around uh, just after uh, I think just after Steve Englehart's run, because uh, at the time he was uh, he was already dating Sharon Carter, who uh, appeared during the uh, in. Right. She didn't really appear during Heart's run because she appeared a little bit bef- way before, but uh, she was introduced as Sharon Carter as the the the, the nephew of Peggy Carter during Steve Engelhart's run. So okay. I think I'm not really sure, but at this period in time in in this issue of Marvel Twin One, it was just after uh, Engelhart's run. Cool. So this
3: issue is written by Steve Gerber, yeah, and, um,
7: and it's drawn by Saul Buscema.
3: Yeah, and uh, and they make a good combo. I I like their work here, and um, or one of the things I found interesting is that when they go to this the future, um, of course, all of the buildings look the same, but in the background there are a <laughs> whole bunch of like moons and stuff that are orbiting, I guess orbiting Earth. Apparently, a thousand years in the future. We get a, a few more moons, or something, because uh, Sal draws a whole bunch of different planets just in the sky.
7: Yeah, and one one thing that it doesn't—it's re- not really graphic in the story, but when you re- read the description, it's quite frightening. Is because when they get in the future and they are attacked by these guys called the, the Zoms, they say that they—they uh, they don't feel any pain. So the thing suggests to break every bone they have. <laughs> yeah. And if you, if you think a bit about it, it's pretty violent. That's
3: very harsh. And it's, um, yeah, the thing can be, he, some people just write them like very, uh, very rough. But can you imagine? It's like they're actually seriously critically injured if you're breaking every bone. Even if they don't feel it, that's still a fairly cruel thing to do. <laughs>
7: okay and I, I we don't see the johnny storm during this issue isn't this the period where he had the the red suit
3: um that is around now and I, he appears in the red suit a little later on in this book um ah, okay but yeah that that is correct i don't know where he is in this issue though um, this this whole issue is uh, it's kind of all set up because it's a two parter. It it bleeds into the next issue. Yeah, but uh, it sets up the whole backstory of Guardians of the Galaxy.
7: Yeah, uh, maybe the the next hosts uh, will specify a little more, but. Steve Gerber did a great job with uh, Guardians of Galaxy because he took them uh, as they were first published in. uh, Let me see here because I'm I'm reading the the um, Guardians of Galaxy Tomorrow's Avengers trade in the first volume. So uh, in uh, the the Guardians of Galaxy first appeared on a magazine called Marvel Superheroes and uh, in issue 18 they they introduced the guardians of galaxy and the first story was uh, let me see yeah it was written by arnold drake then steve gerber uh, brought back the these characters and he started uh, working with them in marvel twin 1 then later in the issues of defenders that's
3: right yeah and then Gave them their his own their own series.
7: Yeah, that's it. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, what did you think about this issue in general? Did you like it?
7: Yeah, I think for uh, for twenty page issue, uh, lots of things happens, and uh, even if the the beginning is a little, uh, i would say the the, the bread bread and butter uh, superhero story yeah. and adventure, the the end uh, the cliffhanger you see at the end, and even the um, the the fights at the end is really entertaining it
3: is and it's it definitely you know doesn't have a good conclusion because it's the end of a two-parter but i mean the beginning there's humor it's funny with the lions and the the gorillas and stuff and uh and then there's lots of action in here and and just the i love the how they reveal the the mystery of this woman who's come from the future um there's science fiction there's time travel um it's great. It's uh, it's. I think there's a lot to love here, and then it only gets
7: bigger as you move into the next into the next issue. Yeah, and just uh, one last thing: the monster you see appearing at the end of the issue, who is called the Monster of Badoon Yeah, he appears later in the when the uh, Guardians of Galaxy gets uh, a monthly series when after the Defenders they were published in. In uh, a monthly called uh, Marvel Presents, and then in Marvel Presents, in number eight, he he appears again, but in a flashback sequence, fighting the Silver Surfer.
3: Well, there we go. That uh, that covers this one. Thanks for joining us on this issue, Tommy, and we will have you back for uh, Marvel 2-in-1 Volume 2.
7: Yes, I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. The
3: next issue up is Marvel 201 number five, The Thing and the Guardians of the Galaxy. And joining me for this issue is Craig Elliott, my mm-hmm. Doctor Strange and Thor co host. Yeah, um, kind of i I'm going to say nice to take a break from those two
8: characters because they're fantastic and you don't need a break from them. But it's uh, kind of fun to explore another corner of the Marvel universe. Um, and this is not. Um, this is the future, in, in this case.
3: And a group of characters that don't get much play these days.
8: Well, in fact, these are characters that are all but forgotten. Like they've been usurped, because um, this is this is Marvel Two and One, the Thing, and the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Um, but this is not Groot and Rocket and Drax and um, Star Lord. Yeah. Um, this is, except for Gondu. This is a bunch of characters who. I don't think they're ever going to make it into one of the movies. <laughs> no, I'm, actually, they all have been in. Well, technically speaking, they okay. were all yes. in Guardians of
3: the Galaxy number two. They, but they're not.
8: They're not going to make it into a prominent role. I don't yeah. think. I think they're going to be cameos at best. Right. And so that's that's too bad because they were
3: they were the Guardians of the Galaxy long before, the, the for like thirty years they were the Guardians of the yeah. Galaxy because they yeah. first appeared in the sixties. Yes. Had their own thing through the 70s, and um, they had the famous, they had an ongoing series with um, Jim Valentino yep. uh, through the 90s. Yes. And then they, like you said, got usurped. <laughs> yeah, they, they they
8: got replaced um, by a great team. Like, the current roster is fantastic. And yeah. I don't think after the success of those movies, it's one that's going to go away anytime soon. But we're not talking about those movies. We're talking about uh, one issue from the 70s. Yep, and it really this is this is half th- this shouldn't be called Marvel 2-in-1 this should be called Marvel a whole bunch of heroes doing something cool because <laughs> it's also got Captain America from the previous issue yep. it, it's it's a continuation of the previous issue and somehow Captain America has lost out on having any sort of billing in this book he's just there yes
3: well he made the cover <laughs> all this in Captain America 2 <laughs>
8: yeah well and poor Sharon Carter gets zero credit true very true um, yeah, because she's there too Yeah, she's there, um, which is too bad um, But no, so it's it's an interesting book Because it picks up, we're now in the future The previous issue, is, as fans know And as listeners know um, Captain America and, and the Thing um, Just by fluke Are at the Baxter building when Reed repairs a time Travel device of Dr. Dooms And discover that um, The Earth is enslaved in the future And the two of them, heroic as they are Decide they need to go to the future to, to solve this And so this issue picks up After they have arrived and already been captured And so they're being um, Interrogated by the Badoon So we jump right into the action as the Badoon are interrogating them But good old Ben Grimm Comes to And clobbers some things As he should, yeah And um, that draws the attention of the rebel humans Who want to Save, or to liberate the Earth and uh, they reach out to the Guardians of the Galaxy who are waiting patiently for an opportunity to come fight the Badoon. And so you get, you get the, the Guardians, and you get, like we said, a different version. You get, you get Martin X, you get Charlie 21, and you get Vance Astro. Um, and then you, you also get Yondu, who is a little different than the one in the movies, yep. but, but you get Yondu back as well. And so that's... That, and then it's basically just fighting. This is just one
3: big clobber-in-time issue. And a lot happens. it's like there's some pretty brutal clobbering in here. I think it, uh, there's a one splash page on it's one forty one in this epic collection where all of the, the uh, all of our heroes and their allies are fighting the badoon, and for this for this is war, and people die in wars, both the bad guys and the good guys, and whoever dies more loses. It's, that's a that's a valid statement. Yep, for the most part. Yeah, and it, it, I mean it just illustrates the point that like this is a this is a big deal. There's a lot at stake here, um, and it's cool that the the guardians come into play because they are they're they're off in a spaceship and they they they're, they're off in a makeshift. Star Trek, Inter- Starship Enterprise, by right. the way. <laughs> yes. If you, if you look at the panel, it's there in the Enterprise. It's very Star Trek influenced. <laughs> uh, yeah, Star Trek influenced. But they, they come back because they're called back. Like, they hadn't planned to come back uh, to help Earth, even though Earth is enslaved. But yeah. uh, but they come back anyway. So this this sort of takes place in the middle of, of the Guardians' overall story in terms of Marvel history. Uh, they hadn't really been seen um too much before this i like the fact that this group of guardians
8: for the most part have links to earth like one is from an earth colony they're all from different earth colonies i think that's what i mean like but they're they're linked they have well vance Astro is from our from from the contemporary time of captain america and he's been thrown into the future right so these ones are very much guardians of the the milky way galaxy and more specifically Earth, the Earth solar system, they are they are tied to Earth more than the current incarnation. Um, which is interesting then that they wouldn't have a greater desire to come back and liberate Earth from from the Badoon.
3: Now Guardians had their first ongoing series in one of the Marvel's anthology books called Marvel Presents. And it was written by Steve Gerber. And it was um that was kind of the first time that they got an ongoing series. And This is the kind of... This is the start of that. This is the first time that Steve Gerber gets a hold of the Guardians of the Galaxy. And then later on, he gets to spin them out into his own book and and really develop more of the the battle with the Badoon and and showing where these characters are going. So I wonder if this is sort of like a backdoor pilot kind of thing, like testing the waters, because we really haven't seen the Guardians of the Galaxy for like... I don't know how many years it was before this that they last appeared, um, but they weren't popular. They are just forgotten characters even at this point. Yeah. And so by my sticking them in Marvel 2 and one and pairing them up against what was one of their most popular characters at the time, oh, The yeah, Thing. The, the Thing was huge yeah. at the time. Then uh, they can test uh, fan reaction to see yes. how well these, these guys do. And then they did well enough to put them... It wasn't exactly their own title... But they got the top billing in Marvel Presents number. I can't remember what number it was that they start number seven or something like that, and uh, and had, that series lasted for twelve issues, but it wasn't popular enough. If it were popular enough, it would have spun out into its own titled book. But it didn't do that. You know why though? It failed. No, no Groot. Well,
8: I was gonna say no, no talking raccoon, but yeah, no rocket, no Groot. That was the that was the missing ingredient. That's right.
3: Well, Groot hadn't uh, Groot had already been created by this time, but Rocket no wasn't rocket. even a thought at this point. What do you think no. of this issue? Was it okay? Did you like it? I thought it was fun.
8: It, I mean, it literally is just clobbering time. Yes, yeah. there's not a lot of thinking. It's just fighting. I loved Sal Bushema's art. I think mm-hmm. it's gorgeous. I love the huge full splash page that we get. That almost looks like a like, if you just you, like a where's Waldo panel? It is, yeah, <laughs> um, it's tons of fun seeing everything
3: that's going on Yeah, um, I like the fact that Captain America was still known in the yes. in like a thousand years in the future, um, but he's like a mythical legend yeah. of a character. Uh, yeah. No one really knows anything really about him. They just know the icon of Captain America, except for we'd recognize that fighting style anywhere.,
2: <laughs>
3: okay, I guess uh, um, yeah, I guess that's true. That's, uh, but
8: Vance Astro, to be fair, is not from the future, so he had seen Captain America in the, in right. the flesh, previously. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I like that. I liked the story itself. I liked the quick pace. Like I like shorter stories. Sometimes I love serialized stories, and I love the big events. But I like some of these. Like there's a there's real art to doing a good twenty two page story. Yeah, yeah. And this this to me was a good twenty two page story. I mean, it, well, forty four page story yeah. because it was two parter. Yeah, because it did. Carry over from Captain America, although the carnival stuff wasn't necessary. So, what, 30 page story? Maybe? <laughs> yeah, sure. It, whatever it is, it's not quite 20, but it's not, it didn't need seven or eight issues. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot happens,
3: there's a lot of action. It's, it's an all out war. Yeah. And they tie it up in one issue. Yeah.
8: Right. Yeah. No no drawn out crises or, or gauntlets or anything like that. Yep. No need to call it infinite. Um, yeah. yeah, so I didn't know. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I thought I thought Bashima's art served it well. I thought the pacing was good. Um, I love the way the things dialogue is written. <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: So. yeah, yeah, yeah. was a lost art for sure. Yeah. Well, there we go. Thanks for joining me on this one issue, and we'll have you back for Marvel Two in One Volume Two. Sounds like a plan. Cheers. Up next is issue number six. This is the Thing and Doctor Strange, and this issue is called Death Song of Destiny and with me for this issue is chris russ hi uh now i am a fan of your website uh or the articles that you do on your website so can you tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah
9: so uh i'm one of the contributing writers to MultiversityComics.com. i write a a monthly column on there called avengers historian and then i'm also on twitter my handle is avengers historian uh, at chris j russ i tweet a lot about the avengers (laughs) primarily but also a bunch of other stuff that's comics related
3: and I'm happy that you are on the show here today because um, because of your articles, and not because of this episode in particular, but I've asked you to kind of be a part of some of the early Avengers issues that we'll be doing in the future. So stay tuned. This is a little bit of a sneak peek of what episodes with Chris Russ are going to be like in the future. <laughs> yes.
9: Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to those. Those would be great to get into the early, early Avengers issues. Um, so, yeah, this was... Uh, I love this issue. This, do you want me to go ahead and summarize it?
3: Yes, please. Go for it.
9: All right, great. So, Marvel 2-in-1 number six. Uh, Doctor Strange and Clea are in Manhattan when a girl is robbed of her harmonica by a young man named Duff. During the scuffle for the instrument, the girl falls, is hit by a train, and is transformed into this shower of multicolored sparks. And then during the issue, we see how this weird incident alters the destiny of everyone who witnessed it and how that destiny brought The Thing and Doctor Strange together.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good summary. It's, it's a, this was a bizarre issue. I, <laughs> I, it has an interesting story. I really like the fact that they realize that destiny has been changed and they have to go and change it back, which is an odd concept. It's like, how do you change destiny
9: Yeah, and it's apparently a very powerful force. There's there's a bit in the comic where Doctor Strange is talking to Destiny, and he he commands her to say who she is, and then she's like, "You don't have to do that. I'm just going to tell you." And then he commands her to not leave, and she's like, "Nope, I'm Destiny. I'm going to leave now." (laughs) There's powerless against it. It's kind of cool that uh, somebody can do that to Doctor Strange.
3: It's that's yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, and so we meet a bunch of these uh, characters, these side characters that are really only in this issue, but they're the ones who witness witness yeah. the, the events here. Now, the thing, let's see here. Let's see. Um, there's a husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of a young couple. And the guy uh, loses his face. Quite frightening. Yeah,
2: that
9: was uh, absolutely bizarre. So these, these Marvel Two and One issues. This is the first Steve Gerber stuff I've ever read. Okay. So. Um, I've, I'm familiar with his reputation, and this seems to be a very Gerber-esque thing to, to have happen. Yeah,
3: he doesn't know. get too Gerber in these issues, except for well, like right here, actually.
9: One, he kind of did, I feel like. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is a bizarre issue, certainly. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I love it. And then just kind of fixes his face. It was a very quick turnaround on
3: that. Right, and I think that it has to be a quick turnaround because we only have one issue to to do all this. Yes. Um, but then the other issue is that uh, the guy, uh, part of the Yancy Street Gang, who witnessed it, he feel he fears that he's going to be um, swallowed up by the rat infested slum that he lives in, and so a giant rat comes to try and swallow him up. And
2: yep. uh, uh, yeah,
9: he definitely used to be attacked by that giant rat because it kind of represents the the trap that he feels he's powerless against. So
3: it's, yeah, it's, it's, about his situation. Uh, and
9: then the, then the young man, he felt like with his work, he was becoming faceless and kind of personalityless because of his situation. So that Mm -hmm. was very very, (laughs) literally in his facelessness.
3: Yeah. And by changing their destiny, they send both of these characters off onto um, a a better life. It's like their Mm -hmm. destiny. They didn't just change destiny back to the way it was. They, I think they changed because they could have easily just carried on with their lives um, indefinitely the way they were. But They've given these these guys um, a new lease on life.
9: Yes, and the, the quote from the, the, the girl who t- is turned into those Sparks, who's the f- kind of physical embodiment of Destiny, her quote to Doctor Strange when they were speaking was, Destiny must ever move on, Doctor Strange. No command may halt it and only acts may alter it. So it's kind of an interesting force that you can shift, but you can't really directly combat.
3: The one question I have here is well, how come... Now, I know why they didn't address... The drunk Alvin Denton in this one, because we deal with that in the next issue. But um, the other people who witness this is Sheldon's wife Renee Goldenberg. How come her destiny isn't altered, or is she too tied to her husband's destiny that Uh, it worked for both of them?
9: I was thinking about that, and also Duff's buddy. He doesn't really have a direct destiny, or even really Doctor Strange and Clea. Well, exactly. Yeah, you could kind of say that Doctor Strange's destiny was maybe to work with the other people but the other people had very direct like violent mystical transformations in their lives um and Clea or the, the friend of Duff or the wife of the, the young man didn't have I, I wasn't sure why because it wasn't yeah. just people who interacted you could say Duff is one because he kind of pushed her over uh but the young couple didn't do anything
3: no so. no they didn't that was
9: it was definitely strange yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't completely understand some of that. I felt like I just kind of, it felt like reading like early Justice League comics or something. I just had to kind of go with some of it. <laughs> yeah. Like let it kind of suspend disbelief for, for a few of these bits.
3: It's very true. And I like how this is a two-parter, but this one chapter sort of stands alone. Yeah, um, we don't get any resolution about the harmonica or anything like that. It leaves us on a cliffhanger, yeah. but it's still a good, just a solid uh, story, except for the, you know, really except is. the things that you have to kind of glance over, I guess.
9: Yeah, I think I think of the, it, it's one of the strongest issues I think of this Gerber two-in-one run. I like that you won a lot with Man Thing, but this one was really great as
2: well. Yeah, it was
9: very fun. Um, I, I The one thing about the harmonica is I absolutely love how usually when comics writers create like a mystical object it's something kind of timeless like the serpent crown or some gem or something like that and in this, in this case Gerber uses a harmonica which is <laughs> yeah. not, like inherently mystical seeming instrument right and it, it's kind of bizarre especially in that one panel where it's sitting on Dr. Strange's like marble kind of pyramid structure and it's all these arcane rituals around it and it's just a regular old harmonica sitting there.
3: Yeah, well, I think part of it is because it's—I believe—harmonicas are just a—they're a twentieth-century a invention. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it doesn't date any older than that. So usually, these mystical things that. are hundreds and hundreds of years old.
9: Exactly, it'd be like a mystical cell phone. That's kind of what. I think. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is. Yeah. Essentially modern. Yeah, I, I like. Did you, you want to talk about the art at all in this issue? Yeah, please do. Um, I so I am most familiar with Tuska from early Avengers issues, mm-hmm. and. His, his style there contrasts a lot with uh, Buscema because he happened around the same time and it was it always felt a little older fashioned because he is an older writer and he started writing I think in the late 30s so he kind of came up in the golden age but here I really like his work especially with uh, I think Mike Esposito the, the inker I really particularly love his rendition of Fang he looks really craggly and very likable um, and he kind of really, um, gets a lot of personality out of the guy
3: It is very different when you compare this to, let's say, Jim Starlin's thing, which we see in the first few issues of this book, where he's very kind of smooth. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's very smooth over. And I don't know if that's um, the smoothness might actually be a Joe Sinnott inking thing, because uh, that's how he inked um, John Buscema's uh, thing in Fantastic Four as well.
9: Yeah, and you can see that smoother thing on the cover of this issue, actually. too. Right,
3: yeah, that's a Starlin cover. cover. I think like, it's
9: Romita. Oh, no, yeah, senior. yeah,
3: it is. It's mm-hmm. Romita.
9: Um, that cover, I it, it looks like they're summoning some sort of rat monster from some kind of, you know, green flames. That cover doesn't really represent what happens in the issue at all.
2: No.
3: <laughs> it's still
9: great. I love it.
3: <laughs> yeah, the cover is very strange. Doctor strange. And
9: although the issue is very Doctor Strange-focused, even though it's Thing's book technically. So there's nine pages with just Doctor Strange, three with just Thing, and then both for six pages. So it's yeah, definitely kind of Gerber's exercise to write a lot of Doctor Strange in this issue.
3: Well, and Gerber was writing Defenders at the time. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's certainly
9: in this series not shy about promoting his other properties. Oh, not one. at
3: all. Yeah, not at all.
9: It's kind of mostly what he does, which is not always bad, but it's definitely what he's doing.
3: Now i want you I want you to turn to page number one forty eight okay uh, because uh, as good as George Tusca is, there's a really poor choice of panel layouts here. Uh, on page four uh, one forty eight there's sort of two tiers of panels. There's the top three panels, and then mm-hmm. there's the bottom two panels. Yeah. And the way you should read that top tier of panels is you should read the top the the first panel and then the one below it and then the one to the right. Yeah, but the way he's done this is the, um, the according to the word bubbles is the the panel on the top, then the panel the long panel to the side, and then you have to loop back down to the pa- the, the the middle yeah. panel, middle of the page there.
9: I think I might have read that in the wrong order as
3: The way they've laid out the bubbles though is that um, uh, the Nick the buddy here says street, and then there's two little dashes that conclude in the next. <laughs> <laughs> the next little panel there, so you know which direction to go. It sort yeah. of flows you there, except now there's a panel at the very there's a there's a, a text box at the very bottom of this long skinny panel. So if you don't pay attention, you you'll skip right over it and go to this other panel, and you won't read that um that yeah. that one at the bottom there. But if you, in contrast, to go to page one fifty three, he has the exact same layout, but he does it the proper way this time. Yeah that was that was strange
9: but even that one too i wasn't sure i think i thought it was going to be the same way and so and did i think I. I read that one out of order but in the other way
3: but it's not it's so it's uh yeah he needs to to get his uh, well i mean he can't now because he's long gone but <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but yeah he he did it two different ways which is kind of strange yeah, yeah
9: and there are a couple of bits that look a little bit rough too some of the facial expressions seem a little strange you know, even the first, you know, first couple of pages, especially the second page of the story, the first time we get that really close up um, in the bottom right-hand panel on Duff. Yeah. he looks particularly evil in kind of a weird cartoonish way that's not really natural looking. So his his Doctor Strange and Clea look fantastic in that same panel, but yeah, there's some there's some there's some rough bits, but overall I really enjoyed the storytelling. I really enjoyed the action of it, and I I was happy with it overall.
3: Yeah, so one final thing, and then we can close off, is um, on page 161 Mm -hmm. in the third panel, Doctor Strange calls Wong wrong.
2: Oh,
9: I thought he was just telling Clea she was wrong about something. (laughs) I I don't think I I picked up on that the first time. Um, Yeah, it looks like he's addressing... Clea, we have a guess. (laughs) But she hadn't said anything correct or anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's like in early Spider-Man issues where he's, what what is his? Sometimes his name is incorrect. I think in the earliest Spider-Man. Yeah, issues. Peter
3: Palmer and stuff. Yeah, yeah Peter yeah. Palmer <laughs> for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love it. Yeah, but I like that they've kept those mistakes in these reprints, just I because that's the way it was. Yep. In
9: in some of the Epic Collection, do they they fix coloring mistakes? I think usually, or just. Uh, or do they those ones
3: in? I've seen times when they have not fixed coloring mistakes and times that they have. So I think it's a case-by-case okay. thing, yeah.
9: Okay, got it. But yeah, I do really appreciate them leaving the typos in there. Uh, when I was reading the Moon Knight Epic Connect Collection, the first one, I noticed, I think, a particular <laughs> few in that one. So sometimes in the, in the crazy 70s, I think they let a few things slip through.
3: Yeah. Oh, and I don't think I mentioned this when I talked about issue number one with Drew, but the cover to issue number one has a typo on the cover. Really? Yeah.
9: What's the, what's the typo
3: there? Um, just in the top corner, uh, it says Marvel two-on-one.
9: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's quite a bit off, I
2: guess. <laughs> yeah,
3: it's pretty funny. And that's, um, that is mentioned. There is a great book called the Marvel No Prize Book. It's just a one-shot issue where they point out all of the mistakes that they've made over the years and that's one of them
9: got it but yeah overall i think the issue is great it's fun it's weird it's interesting you have to going into it you have to know this is a early 70s marvel comic early mid 70s so it's going to be kind of off the wall but it's if you suspend your disbelief a little bit it's it's a fun ride.
3: definitely well there we go thanks for joining us for this episode chris yeah thanks for having me Okay, moving on to issue number seven. This is um, the thing and Valkyrie, and this episode is or this issue is called "Name That Doom." And talking with me about this issue is Jason. Hi, Jason. How's it going, Curtis? Uh, this is this is great because we had a great time talking about Defenders in uh, some recent episodes, and now we get to talk about Defenders again because this is a fairly pivotal issue
10: for Valkyrie. It's enormous for Valkyrie at least uh, this early incarnation of Valkyrie. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And her history is, oh boy, it's it's a twisted, Gerber-infused uh, miasma at times, but it is loaded down with pathos, and this issue really hammers that home.
3: Now, in these early issues of Marvel 2 and 1, I think I've mentioned this in some of the other conversations in this episode, um, but the uh, when Gerber is writing this, he often ties his stories, his two-in-one stories, into the stories of the other books that he's writing. So, like, the Daredevil story relates to what is going on in, in his Daredevil stories at the time. And, of course,
10: Steve Gerber was writing Defenders at this time as well. I would also point out that what he does in these early issues is going to, in a lot of ways, become a thread line throughout the entire series. So, for example, he introduces us to Thundar, but Thundar is going to become Aquarian in the Great Project Pegasus, and is going to be a kind of a, a side character to Ben Grimm the entire time through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is a—you know—this is really the foundation point for this fantastic series.
3: However, in this one issue, um, issue number seven, uh, what happens here with Valkyrie is probably the event in this whole epic collection that has the biggest lasting ep- effect on any of the characters in this book uh, because it actually affects her origin and, and the way and like moving forward Valkyrie is a different character uh, you can't say that for
10: any of the other guest stars in this two in one book mm. I think we had a conversation similar to this when we talked about the Defenders but what is your impression your early read your your vibe on Valkyrie coming in pretty much as an outsider
3: well, I'm only learning about Valkyrie for the first time through these epic collections, so I don't know anything about her her origin. I only know how she is portrayed by J.M. DiMatteis in the the books that we talked about um, in that in that previous episode. So this, honestly, in this character, she comes off in this issue. She comes off pretty flat. She doesn't mm-hmm. really have a whole lot of um, of personality or anything like that. It's more about her dad. Um, than about her. And it's about Enchantress, more about her as well. So I don't really feel like I get a good impression of who Valkyrie is from this issue.
10: Interesting. So a little background on Valkyrie, at least as she appears in the Marvel Universe. She came in with the, um, the idea that Marvel oftentimes will embrace social issues of the day and then use the comic as a metaphor for making those part of it. So she became part of the women's lib sort of movement. And in a lot of the early Defenders issues... She's fantastic because if Ben Grimm's tagline is his in time, hers is uh, you chauvinist pig as <laughs> she beats the tar out of people. Right, and it makes it it, it you know it makes it such an anachronistic sort of book um, for reading it from modern eyes. Yeah, but it's so much fun. It's it's just so much fun, and she's uh, she's my favorite character of the Defenders. And has been one of my consistently all-time favorite characters throughout. I love the look of Valkyrie. I love the swagger of Valkyrie. Um, She has an interesting power set. And her story, especially if you read The Defenders, is fascinating. Uh, Even her relationship to Odin. um, Her relationship to uh, her husband, the the Norris husband. And all of that is just so tied into... A messy story by, uh, by no doubt, but a fascinating one full of all kinds of really intense pathos. And in fact, we almost get two Valkyrie, story, uh, two Valkyrie characters. The one that we're dealing with right now is the one that is inhabiting the bar- body of Barbara Norris. Um, and that's where this story really starts sinking its teeth into, is what the ramifications are of when Barbara Norris essentially loses her mind to the Undying One, in Defenders number three, that's where we kind of get the the story of her, where she was taken over by this almost cosmic level uh, magic-infused creature. And as she got taken over by it, it drove her insane. And the Enchantress then takes the body of Barbara Norris, kind of eliminates the mentality of Barbara Norris, which is a little bit dodgy, and is dealt with later on in the Defenders, and infuses it with the essence of Valkyrie. So in this particular issue, we have the body of Valkyrie, which I guess for comics logic looks exactly like Barbara Norris's. Um, but, and so you have these characters who relate and know and love, in some cases, Barbara Norris, but it's not Barbara Norris. And in this particular issue, we get a, a big dose of the father um, Alvin Denton, and how he ends up boy, he comes off like a really sad character in this particular issue, yeah, as he describes in this issue how he lost his his wife, his daughter was the only thing that pulled him through, and now he effectively loses his daughter as well. he says something
3: at the bottom of page one hundred and seventy two he says, my daughter." F- Uh, spent all the following summer with me, uh, pulled me through it, but that was also uh, the summer that she met her fiancé, Jack, and the two of them fell in with a bunch of occultists, and not long after, she disappeared without a trace. And I did an episode, like a year ago, about the Doctor Strange epic collection, A Separate Reality, and in that epic collection is the Incredible Hulk number 126, which is um, basically the... The formation of the defenders because uh dr strange goes through the submariner and then the incredible hulk and uh, this is when he's between Ceres himself and he he meets up with the incredible or he's captured by what's that guy it's called the mindless one you said
2: mm-hmm.
10: the mindless one those are those monsters uh the undying one is
3: oh, sorry yeah the undying one yeah now. and um the hulk sets him free and in though that issue we meet barbara and jack barbara norris for the first time, and I had no idea. I thought they were just throwaway characters. They're certainly treated like throwaway characters in this issue, but I guess, I don't know who it was, I guess Steve Gerber brought them back when he needed some characters for the Valkyrie story.
10: Yeah. Boy, that panel that you're talking about, too. Oh, my goodness, the Sal the Sal B. Really draw uh, poor Alvin Denton as down and out.
3: Yeah, Sal and Mike Esposito make a really, really good team in this issue. I've said I've said this before in other podcasts. I'm not usually a fan of Mike Esposito's inks, but he works very well here um, to to capture the emotion that Sal is putting into these characters. And Sal is just great with with these um, sad expressions in Alvin Denton's face.
10: Yeah, some things. Um, so the basic story in this one, I guess we should jump into it is that, um, and based upon your conversation previous with the Doctor Strange issue, we have this uh, harmonica floating around. Yeah. And there's a question of whether or not it's actually Valkyrie who has the the harmonica, turns out to be the executioner and the enchantress. And that's going to lead us to a showdown in Vermont. Cobblers roost over this. One thing about this showdown that disappointed me and this issue Disappointed Me, is we only get one and a half pages worth of fight between uh, the Executioner and Ben Grimm. Right, I love yeah. when we get the heavyweights going at it, and this is unfulfilling. Although towards the end of the issue, they, they match up again, and we get a good old-fashioned in time, and how Sal likes to draw these massive <laughs> punches with the mouth open and that weird sort of thing. Yeah, flying upside
3: down. Yeah, exactly.
10: It's a great one. It's a great one. But um, here we also get some great Sal, who I don't tend to think of Sal for his psychedelics, but um, we do get some when when Denton blows on the harmonica, and it looks like the world's about to come undone.
3: (laughs) Yes, Uh (laughs) it actually does. The world crumbles to pieces. And then he has to blow on the harmonica again, and then the world is restored again. (laughs) It's a a bizarre, bizarre thing. But the reason why he's doing this is because in the previous issue, we found out that the harmonica affects people's destinies. And so Mm -hmm. in Alvin Denton's case, it's interesting because he says he has no destiny. He says that when he's explaining to Ben Grimm how much his life has gone in, in the crapper. And so, if that's the case, when he blows on the harmonica, if he has no destiny, then that means that there is, everything should cease to exist.
10: Um, so, that's what happens. The world starts to crumble. Man. And it costs poor Alvin his life. Yep. Uh, so, he has to make the sacrifice. And, from my, from my opinion, one of the greatest moments in the entire series of Marvel 2 and one is the last two panels. Um, that Ben Grimm tries to comfort the confused Valkyrie, who is distraught over this person who's now dead, who called himself her father. But Ben has some of the best, the best lines. Oh, yeah. That last panel where he says to her, he's holding her, and he says, uh-huh, whatever you are, kid, it ain't that, or my soldier wouldn't be getting drenched. Paper dolls don't cry. Only us real people got that problem.
2: Ah, oh, what
10: a gut punch. What a great line. And it's so great because he has only
3: just met Valkyrie for the first time here. Um, but he already knows um, enough to say the right thing.
10: Yeah. And even, even what she's speaking of in the, uh, is now she has this crisis of who is she, where she says, I am, empty, I am but an empty facade of fiction kind of wondering exactly what her place in this world is that a man would sacrifice himself for her who she doesn't even know it's all pretty tragic here um, but it gives it gives so much pathos so much gravity to this issue it's it's, yeah. it's a spectacular one the only thing that i did not
3: think was great about this about this issue was um, that i think it was not very well explained that alvin denton had a heart attack and died because it's a blink if you miss it kind of thing. You see him, and there's a there's even text that says on 176 that he has a pain in his chest, and then we cut you the know, scene. You know, I totally missed
10: that. <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly, exactly. And then at the very end, he's just lying on the ground there, dead. Um, and I I just think it wasn't that portion wasn't told very well.
10: Oh, I'd have to agree with you because yeah, now looking at that at the uh, you know, the art doesn't even convey that Yeah, because he's just kind of floating there and, and the the box text says but he barely hears the entropy a new pain has gripped him in the center of his chest he lets the precious instrument drop
3: yeah I think that uh, the text had to be added in after Gerber got the, the art back in order to make his story work that's my guess because that's the marvel method at work right there sometimes
10: that's a pretty solid guess Yeah, <laughs> I can't uh, disagree with that at all <laughs>
3: But otherwise, uh, solid story. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next because this story is not continued in Marvel 2 and one um, It's continued in Defenders number 20. So whenever we get that epic collection, it's probably going to be epic volume 2, I would imagine, of Defenders. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to exploring more of that and seeing what happens with Valkyrie.
10: Awesome. I'm looking forward to doing that with you.
3: Up next in our episode is Marvel Two and One Number Eight, The Thing and Ghost Rider. This this issue is called Silent Night, Deadly Night. And joining me for this one is Brian Biggie. How you doing, Curtis? Just fine, thanks. I uh, appreciate you joining us for this episode, and you are my uh, Ghost Rider expert.
11: <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm yeah, I do appreciate it, and thank you for having me on as well. Um, I gotta say that you know. Uh, Out of me and my co-hosts, I'm definitely more of the casual Ghost Rider fan. My co-host, Chris Munn, is definitely the expert, so I will defer to him on that. But thank you for the compliment anyway.
3: And so tell me just a little bit about that podcast.
11: Absolutely. So like I said, I'm co-host and one half of Inner Demons. That's the Ghost Rider podcast. Uh, Along with my good friend, like I said, Chris Munn, we review all things Spirit of Vengeance, starting with the 70s and going all the way to present day uh we have a site that's basically been around since 2001 uh, it's called vengeance unbound and you can find us at vengeanceunbound.blogspot.com. we're also on facebook and twitter at inner demons gr you can feel free to send us a line or a question we always do polls like yourself and uh, we try to uh, really interact with the fans so uh, there you go
3: have you talked about this particular issue yet
11: Yes, it's really ironic that we're doing it, uh, we're recording this episode now, because um, very, very recently, Chris and I just did this episode in conjunction with the Christmas holiday, so we'll be dropping that right around the Christmas holiday, so yeah, if if people want to dig a little deeper into it with a slightly different format, check us out, uh, the Inner Demons podcast, so. That's great, this episode will
3: hopefully air early January, so it'll be, yeah, they will coincide. So, yeah, why don't we dive into this one? Uh, We'll scratch the surface, see what we can come up with, and then uh, then at the end we'll remind everybody to check out your conversation a little bit better. So, yeah, take me through this, Brian. Take me through this issue.
11: Okay, so this is definitely an interesting one, so I'll try to be as brief as I possibly can for the listeners of your show. On Christmas Eve, Johnny Blaze is riding through the Arizona desert where three mysterious men on camels appear on the road in front of him. Johnny Blaze swerves and wrecks his bike. The men check on him, unshaken by his flaming skull, and they tell Johnny that there are three kings following a star toward a child of prophecy. Understandably confused by what's happening, Blaze rides ahead of the kings in order to find answers. Meanwhile, in New York City, the Fantastic Four are celebrating the Christmas holiday, all except for Reed Richards, who is way too busy studying the new star that's appeared in the sky, despite the advice of Ben Grimm, The Thing. So back in Arizona, Ghost Rider arrives at a city which appears to be from biblical times. Only all the residents are actually Native Americans. While investigating the town, Blaze finds the stable, within which is an Indian couple and their baby in a manger. Then Blaze is startled by a shadowed figure who forbids him to enter the stable. The unknown man claims to be the child's creator and sweeps Johnny and the motorcycle into a tornado which carries him back to the hills outside the city. At the Baxter building... Richards has discovered that the new star is pointing towards the Indian reservation of their friend uh, Wyatt Wingfoot. Reed is preparing to go investigate, but Grimm offers to go in his place so Richards can spend the holiday with his family. The thing takes off in the Fantastic Four's pogo plane, and within an hour, he has arrived at the reservation where he's met by the Ghost Rider, who fills Ben Grimm in on, on what's been going on. They see the three wise men approaching on their camels, and Blaze stops them with a ring of hellfire and demands their help. Later, Ghost Rider and the Thing sneak into town, disguised as two of the three wise men. There, they find an old enemy of the Fantastic Four named the Miracle Man, who transforms the stable animals into beasts to restrain the heroes. The Miracle Man explains that he had been imprisoned by the Indian mystics, the Chamuza, and he managed to escape and steal their power. In order to attain godhood, he transformed the Chamuza and the reservation into a replica of Jerusalem, where he has created a new immaculate messiah. Suddenly, though, the Miracle Man's powers fade away when he attempts to kill the Ghost Rider. The Thing frees himself and attacks, but Miracle Man's powers work just fine against Grimm. Miracle Man begins to set the city on fire, hoping to destroy it and the heroes. Before fleeing to the hills, Blaze tells the Thing to go after the villain, while he rescues the spellbound Indians. The Thing catches up to his foe, and after a brief fight, he manages to knock Miracle Man unconscious. At that moment, the villain's spell fades. The town and its residents return to their normal state. The freed chamuza appear and take Miracle Man away with him, but the Messiah Child remains at the reservation to be cared for by the Native Americans. Ghost Rider and the Thing say their goodbyes, but while he drives away, Johnny tries to figure out why the Miracle Man's powers did not work on him. And that is where the issue ends.
3: Uh, Do you know the answer to that question at the end there?
11: Uh, So basically, I I think... (laughs) The Ghost Rider was going through a transitional period at this point. Um, for the first year or two of his existence, he was really a hellbound hero. He was very tied to Satan, and right around the time where Tony Isabella came on to the book, there was a, a move towards more superhero uh, storylines, a little more um, towards villains that uh, wasn't Satan every issue. For many of the first bunch of issues, it was Satan was the villain, and Roxanne was uh, the love of his life was. In danger, so there was a um, a notice shift towards something uh, a little more superhero, like superhero fare. Uh, So it's it's basically because of his hell his hellfire powers that um, I believe the miracle man's powers had no effect on him. That that's my take on it.
3: Okay. Wow. Yeah, you're right about about a lot happening in this issue. It's just jam packed. Yeah, and it's fairly interesting too. I mean, it's uh it's always interesting when you have. A sort of a demonic character mm-hmm. clashing with some sort of you know religious aspects and and what what how is he going to take what is he going to take away from that, or what is how are they going to interact with each other so yeah, um, uh, I find it fitting that uh, that it's the miracle man who is <laughs> such an obscure fantastic four character or or bad guy now, right, but it's like if you think about just the word miracles. Mm-hmm. The the one person that comes to my mind is usually Jesus because he's known for doing all of these miracles. So it's kind of a fitting pair to have yes. him creating this new child who's I guess going to be a. I don't even I don't even know why he's doing <laughs> what he's doing.
11: <laughs> yeah, it's a little unclear for sure. Yeah, and, and ironically, Steve Gerber. The one who wrote uh, the writer who wrote this this story, who was obviously famous for creating, you know, Howard the Duck and, and writing many great issues. Um, supposedly, he was the one who would mentioned to the ghost writer, uh, writer. Uh, that's that's a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> Tony Isabella, who was uh, had taken over the book at the time, and uh, he had actually brought up some ideas to him, uh, so to speak, about bringing in a mysterious friend who's looks a lot like Jesus, but may or may not be Jesus, and so actually, (laughs) one of the reasons why Satan stopped messing with Johnny Blaze for a little while in the 70s was, seems like Jesus was intervening and saying, you know what, Satan, you don't have a claim on his soul anymore, get out of here, so there was a time period where he, he left him alone, and so some fans liked it, some fans didn't, but I think it's ironic between Isabella and Gerber, uh, they have the almost kind of like, from what I understand, uh, some ideas exchanged. And the best part, I think, of this issue is, as a Ghost Rider fan, this actually, this Marvel 2 one issue number eight, it actually continues uh, some storylines through the Ghost, from the Ghost Rider um, ongoing, which is pretty darn interesting, because a lot of uh, other books may not necessarily continue the storyline. So I thought that was pretty interesting, where it kind of leaves them in a place where it just connects to the main series.
3: Yeah, that's really great. I, I like it when that happens cause, uh actually that happens quite fairly frequently in this in this collection. There are a few mm-hmm. times when uh they just pull the plot from the other the other yeah. issue or the other uh series and continue yeah. it. So that's cool. Uh, yes. A few a few notes here. Johnny Storm is wearing red because this is a period where he had a little costume change, and he's trying mm-hmm. to be more like um, the Golden Age Human Torch who wore the red yeah. outfit. So he's changed his costume there. It doesn't last long, but that's what happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Medusa is part of the team at the time. Yeah. Um, because, uh, oh, man, I can't even remember why... It, because all four of them are here at the time i think maybe reed was off be- having some sort of nervous breakdown i can't remember either that or sue was pregnant oh, um,
11: <laughs> possibly both <laughs> no
3: but we see we see uh, franklin here in this issue so mm-hmm. yeah i'm not I, I don't remember why i'll have to look that up <laughs>
11: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was unclear about the lineup at this point too because I wasn't reading Fantastic Four during this era, so I was trying to figure out who was who. And you know, I had to ask people about that. But yeah, so that was a little interesting. It wasn't the usual four, of course, that I was used to. You know.
3: Yeah. My favorite part of this issue is when Ben and Johnny, well Johnny Blaze, uh, dress up as <laughs> two of the wise men. <laughs>
11: Isn't that the best? It's they put on so the robes funny. and everything. Yep. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and just because of the coloring, it's like you have Ghost Rider with his skull face dressed in, a, in
11: pink for some reason. <laughs> it's, just, it's so great. Yep, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of great little moments like that. I mean, first of all, I love the, the Thing and Ghost Rider's camaraderie in this one. I mean, the Thing is one of the few characters thus far in the Ghost Rider's history at this point that didn't really judge him when when he was working with him. Whenever this the Ghost Rider seemed to meet up with say Spider-Man or other heroes, he always scared the heck out of them. He was very uh intimidating. They didn't realize he was a hero right. at the time. Yeah. Thing, what I love about this issue is the thing is just like, "Hey, if you're wearing a skull mask, I don't really care. Let's just get this done." And I love that. I thought <laughs> they both came off like like such cool characters in this one. But yeah there's a lot it's it's a strange issue it's a little hard to get into if you're a brand new reader coming into it because there's you know a lot of wacky stuff happens uh, my favorite part of the issue is when miracle Man is waxing poetic uh, towards the heroes and he is basically going going to this villain diatribe and he totally says you know what I'm gonna tell you guys anyway it, it's it's so silly uh, <laughs> that he's like I despise you you are dirt filth I hate you I loathe you I'm not gonna tell you But for that reason, I must tell you, it's so silly (laughs) that it it cracks me up. But the issue is interesting because it does kind of have a line between silliness and there are some serious elements to it, too. So it kind of follows that delicate line there, you know.
3: Now, I don't know much about Ghost Rider because there aren't really great collections of, of Ghost Rider out there right now. I'm waiting for a nice epic collection line for Ghost Rider. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so so I'm learning a lot about Johnny Blaze just from this one issue here. And mm-hmm. what I love is when he is, uh, he's trying to trick the uh, Miracle Man and he, <laughs> yep. he puts on this act where he's <laughs> like talking, um, it's on page 195, what does he say there? Foolish mortal, did you ever think me truly helpless before you? I, the flame called angel of death... I've stolen your power, mortal. Shattered your dream, mortal. Made you merely a man again, mortal, mortal, mortal. And he's like mocking him, and and just it's just a big distraction, so Thing can get closer and clobber him. It was, but it's uh exactly. It's really yeah. great. I love how he just kind of flips that switch, and there he is. He's a he's badass.
11: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I first of all, great impersonation. By the way, I thought that was, that was very good. Oh, thank um, you. And, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where the character of the, the Ghost Rider had, had changed throughout his his uh, time period. He was around, in you know, from about, what, 72, 73 to, to the early 80s. And during that time period, it started off where Johnny Blaze, the character, was in complete control. He just, at nighttime, he would transform into this being. But his powers and abilities shifted over the years. He sort of went through this change where the being that was the power was starting to exert more control. And that's where actually some of the Ghost Rider fans really, really love when there's a there's a shift later on in the series where, you know what, that that character is more than meets the eye. It's not just Johnny Blaze with a quote unquote spook act where he's just human, but he's scaring everyone to think that he is some monster. He actually is becoming a monster. And uh-huh. it's almost like like a like a dark side to him. So where it's he has to like fight with that so it's it's interesting the character sort of changes a little bit over the years and becomes a, a little bit angrier and he's trying to keep it in check and kind of thing so it it definitely evolves a little bit but at this point you're right curtis yeah he's he's fully johnny blaze and he's putting on some sort of a performance to to buy some time you know wow well
3: this is this has been great do you have anything else you want to add to this year
11: no curtis i i think that's uh that's pretty much it it's you know it, it's a legendary issue and it, it It took me a while to to really see some of the things that my my co-host loves this issue and uh but me reading it for the first time a while back i was kind of confused at some of the story elements but um but now i'm coming around to enjoying it more and and seeing what it's all about so yeah but but that's really it curtis yeah
3: well, I thank you very much for joining me for this episode, and I encourage everybody to check out Inner Demons, the Ghost Rider podcast, to hear more about this issue and a ton of great other Ghost Rider content.
11: Thanks, man. I appreciate it.
3: The final issue that we're going to be talking about in this, uh, in this episode here is Marvel 2 and one number 9. This is The Thing and Thor. It's called When a God Goes Mad. And joining me for this issue is my co-host on um, a few different episodes, on my Ant-Man episodes, on my Moon Knight episodes, and my Fantastic Four episodes. This is my brother, Eric Findlay. Hello again. So tell us, what is what happens in this issue? Uh, Wondar, Namarita, um,
12: and Thing go to a, a puppet show, and they discover that the puppet master is back. What? You don't say. Yeah. And the Puppet Master has a new friend, a new character who appears in this issue uh, for the first time, and his name is Radion. And Radion is able to use his radioactive abilities to supercharge um, the Puppet Master's dolls so he can control Thor. And he controls Thor and orders Thor to destroy the Fantastic Four, because what else are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then
3: fighting ensues. Wow. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Right off the bat, I think that this concept is great. Using a radioactive character to supercharge uh, Puppet Master's radioactive clay is a good idea.
12: Right, because most of the time, he's somehow found another stash of this special magical radioactive clay. Yeah. And he always runs out of it. And and so teaming up with somebody who has the ability to create that clay for him makes a lot of sense. Well, I don't know if he's creating it. Well, but I think he's well,
3: boosting or enhancing its abilities. Okay, I think. but
12: yeah, either way, it's not really clear in this issue. But either
3: yeah. way, it's a it's a good idea. Yep. Um, however, its execution is uh, the the problem with the puppet master is he's a one gimmick guy.
12: Yeah, he's much more interesting when he's expressing concern over Alicia because then it brings his father role into it as well. But other than that, he's, yeah, he, he's pretty boring. A
3: one trick pony. Yeah. And so, yeah, he doesn't do anything creative here. He just does the same thing he always does is makes a doll of a character and mind controls him and tries to send him after the fantastic four. Yeah. And there are a couple other things about the execution that are not,
12: uh, of the story that are not great. First of all, puppet master is supposed to be dead. And, all we get in by way of explanation is that Radion found him and rescued him from the building. Yeah,
3: <laughs> and Radion is this new character, and so this is this is a weird part of it. Also, is that Radion is covered in this hazmat suit or whatever radioactive suit, probably I guess to protect him from to protect his radioactive um, fallout from the puppet master. Right, but they keep his identity a secret for like the whole issue until suddenly it's the big reveal. His secret friend is Radion, the atomic man whom we've never literally never heard of before this moment because he has not existed before now. Oh yeah. That guy that didn't exist. I was thinking that it was Nuclo who is the son of the wizard who has been around for a few years before this, I think.
12: And I was thinking, um, radioactive man, the, um, i believe he's chinese radio action, radiation scientist right yeah the guy of the avengers from right?
3: the old um, iron man comics yeah was he part of the thunderbolts uh, that, for a while yeah yeah um but no it's not any of those guys we, get, we came up with a brand new character who is completely made up of radiation just like those other guys Yep. <laughs> <laughs> now at least he wasn't invented
12: solely for this issue Um, They make mention that he's going to reappear
3: in future issues
12: of Marvel 2 and 1.
3: Yeah, so he actually doesn't reappear in Marvel 2 and 1 until issue 55. So we have quite a ways to go before we see this character again. However, um, this issue was plotted by Steve Gerber, and it was scripted by Chris Claremont. And Chris Claremont goes on to use um, Radeon in Iron Fist number 3 and 4. Uh, which would happen about, I don't know, eight or nine months after this issue comes out. And that's where we get his backstory. We learn more about his origin. And I actually talk about that in my Iron Fist episode, Iron Fist, episode one, The Fury of Iron Fist. So you can check out that if you want more information on this character. What do you think of Thor's involvement in this issue? It's not bad. It seems really
12: strange after the first fight that Thor just sort of snaps out of it. But then um, later on, we get the thing sort of saying, hey, it doesn't feel like he's fighting at his full strength, feels like he's resisting. So I guess maybe that's attributed to the fact that, you know, he's a god, he's Asgardian. And so it's even with the, the radiation boost, it's still hard to control him. You know, he does what he normally does, which is hit things with his hammer. And he does it very well. Um, we see him uh, wailing on Invisible Woman's shield, or I guess invisible girl at this time. Uh invisible girl's shield uh to the point where um
3: she passes out from the the pain of the impact. That's an interesting concept. I never really thought about that that she would feel any pressure that's put against um against the her force field. Like this is a conversation for fantastic. Oh yeah, fantastic totally. Four
12: episode. And just four. very briefly, it doesn't happen a lot she doesn't experience that a lot unless it's a lot of pressure like um, sometimes when they face a a, uh, she's protecting a lot of people from a large explosion or when it's a really large or complicated item um, she starts to feel that pressure and as she gets more experienced um, throughout the years there's less of that but even in the especially in the earlier issues of fantastic four you can see her like she can only stay invisible for a couple of minutes because it requires so much concentration right and that's really the main point of it is uh, the, the concentration of holding it up and reinforcing it is, is the, the main pain behind that, I think.
3: So as we're going through our Fantastic Four episodes, we're going to have to pay attention to the, the strength that the, the Puppet Master's clay has. Because I think maybe the fact that he had supercharged clay is the reason why he picked Thor, because otherwise, Thor's mind—him be being a god—is not easily controlled. That's sort of what they're implying here, it seems. But I
12: don't—I um, don't remember all of the Puppet Masters occurrences off the top yeah, of my head to know right. if he's
3: done something like this before. Yeah, I think that um, this really feels like a fill-in issue. It says that the script, that the plot, is Steve Gerber. Now he's been the regular writer up until this point, and he's stepping off of the title. And in a few months, he's going to launch Howard the Duck. And then, so he's only contributing the plot of this, and the rest of it is Chris Claremont, and Chris Claremont is the one who's credited as creating Radeon. So, um, I think that there is a lot of a lot of Chris Claremont in here. It, it just really feels like a fill-in issue. Yeah, even more so than all of the other issues in Marvel Two and One because they're all sort of like just one-off stories. They could all be fill-in issues, but this well, one more than more than the rest. Well, even. Um...
12: With Wondar in this issue, nothing really happens with him. Um, there's right, nothing yeah. to progress his story at all. Um, they see a puppet show. In fact, he
3: hasn't appeared for a couple of issues before this, so he's just kind of stuck oh. in here. And in fact, right. he's kind of only in here because they need a way out of their story. Right. He's only used um, to get rid of, to absorb Radion's radiation.
12: And um, again, the execution not being great, it says. One dar absorbs radioactivity in whatever form, and radion is a being composed entirely of radioactive uh, materi- uh, matter. So when these two beings come into contact, you guessed it, <laughs> and then it doesn't say what we guessed, well, just because yeah.
3: we guessed it, I guess. I guess it's a, you're supposed to imply, but we have this image of radion kind of doubling over or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Looks like
12: he's trying to put an invisible person in a headlock.
3: Yeah. This this issue also features art from Herb Trimpey which is a, he isn't seen at all in this book other than this one issue. And he's not the he's not the he doesn't do the best puppet master or the best thing or the best Thor, so it's not the greatest uh work yeah. from this artist and it's also not the greatest stuff in this book.
12: Yeah, I I know that Puppet master often has a larger head, but um, at
3: some points, just the shape of the head that he's given is very strange. Yeah. I wonder if it's intentional that they're making him look like, a, I think the way his face look looks in general always reminds me of Howdy Doody or like Charlie McCarthy, those kind Funny of Funny you should
12: mention that. Yeah.
3: Because um, when we get a glimpse at the
12: office that, um, that the puppet master is using on the door, the name is...
3: H. Duty, Puppet Man, oh, Puppeteer. Oh, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> and that would be a nod to Howdy Duty. Yeah, well, I'm sure he's pretending, like, he's dressed up with the handkerchief and with the with wig, and he looks like Howdy Duty kind of in the. In his disguise. What's this? On page 202. Yeah. The, the one last comment that I have is that the thing suspects he has, has a feeling that Puppet Master's behind it. Like, the whole time, Has he's well, sitting through this puppet it's show. It's really weird
12: because he, he brings that up. And then he goes, no, the puppet master's dead and like brushes it off. Um, and then when Thor or when Donald Blake encounters the thing and says, this was Thor that did it, he goes, I knew it. It was the puppet master. It's like, well, no, you didn't. <laughs> you said it can't be because he's dead. And then you're so convinced it's the puppet master. And then when the puppet master reveals himself, the thing's surprised. Yeah.
3: It's, it's very strange. Yep, um, definitely not the highlight of this this volume. That's no. for sure. It's a it's kind of a fun issue to pick apart. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
12: one thing that really disappointed me was on the first page we get this great image of the Fantastic Four beating up Doctor Doom, and then there's an editor's note that talks about how oh this actually isn't about Doctor Doom, and then let's go to the puppet show and. <laughs> totally unnecessary it's totally yeah. unnecessary it's yeah. so just weird just let the reader turn the page and be right. surprised I mean you could have replaced that with a picture of the thing punching Thor and, be go- and, and, and gone well
3: how did we get here right and that would have fit better well there you go that is our issue Marvel 2-in-1 number 9 thanks for joining me on this episode Eric no problem